Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 31 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame. As always, by my side is Matt Feuerstein. And Matt, we are back. We survived the holidays one more year. I am a ghost. I didn't survive at all. So uh, this is the spookiest episode yet. Oh, God, this isn't a keyboard. This is a Ouija board. <laughs> that, that explains a lot, actually. Yes. You've been typing on a Ouija board. <laughs> And uh, this is a Boston show, so that means we're not alone. There's one other ghost haunting us, and you might know this spectral envoy from, uh, I don't even know if that's the right word, but you might know him from Joe versus the World. You might know him from Joe Gagne's Funtime Pro Wrestling Arcade on YouTube. You might know him from the Five Star Match Game. You might know him from guesting on every wrestling podcast ever. Joe Gagne is back one more time yet again. Joe, how are you doing? Oh, I am great. I also uh, pound my chest whenever I vomit, and uh, that's a callback to two episodes ago, uh, <laughs> Teddy Hart, which uh, just delighted me to no end. I, I had to bring that up, even though it's a fairly outdated concept by then. Uh, te- well, Teddy with MLW, he's uh, more in the news ever- than ever, although that's right. maybe not maybe not with vomit-related exploits. No, not yet. Also, uh, Boston show should be in quotes, because we're about... 20 plus miles outside of Boston for this. but <laughs> And yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But first, we have to pay the bills. And by pay the bills, I mean have the privilege of telling you about the great stuff at ProWrestlingOnly.com. Check out ProWrestlingOnly.com to explore other podcasts along with match reviews, features and retrospectives, review of reviews of wrestling books, video games and matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows and movies, and more. You can also join the conversation by signing up at the PWO forums. We've been online for over a decade and with over 2,000 registered members in an archive of over 4 million threads, our message board is a vibrant community all its own. Whether you want to talk about a specific match in our match discussion archive, take a deep dive in the microscope form or discuss other general topics from wrestling's past and present check out all of this and more at prowrestlingonly.com and even though they don't mention this i believe you could also talk about wrestling's future if you want i'm not sure i know for sure past and present just get your ouija board ouija board (laughs) yes you could mostly talk to dead wrestlers but also um the (laughs) so yeah the yeah all the ghosts it's a, it's basically pro wrestling only message board. Think of it as the wrestling version of a Christmas carol. <laughs> you'll come in there all jaded and angry and you'll leave with a new appreciation for life. That's right. And you're so, not and you're not going to uh, and you're not going to mess with Tiny Tim anymore. Even <laughs> even even after his appearance on Monday Night Raw all those years ago. So um because this is uh, the second half of Ring of Honor's first ever double shot weekend, this means we're covering a show that happened literally the day after the last show we covered, which was last episode, episode 30, the conclusion. So that means we don't have a lot of news that happened between the shows, but we do actually have a bit of a story to tell, kind of going to what Joe was mentioning earlier. Uh, this show moved not once, but twice. It was visited by two evil ghosts of Christmas past or angry calls from high schools and we'll go to the observer for the story. I I got clips from a couple observers that kind of tell the story. First observer says 
The November 29th Ring of Honor show was moved from Wakefield, Massachusetts to Woburn, Massachusetts at the Kennedy Middle School. The original site canceled the date because a rival promoter had claimed they were doing ultra-violent matches. And since it was a school board-run building, they didn't want the controversy. So in the new building, also at a school, they announced the most violent main event in company history with a no-rope barbed wire match with Carino versus Homicide. So that's the first story. And you think, oh, that's kind of funny that, oh, school got scared about the violence, so they're going to another school and doing an exceedingly violent match. And you go, okay, that'll be the end of the story. Wait, it was supposed to be at a middle school? That, that's what it said. <laughs> it, uh, it said here, let me just go back, um, Kennedy Middle School. So, yeah, <laughs> that would have been, I can't imagine it would have been like when, when I was going to school, if I knew that they were doing a pro wrestling event at my middle school that weekend. With, like, barbed wire. <laughs> that, that, that would have blown my, like, little puberty-infused mind of just, like, oh, man. If they've got boobs here, it's everything I want. But uh, someone's going to cut that. Uh, the next Observer story that really takes the second turn here. Uh, another Observer. Ring of Honor show on November 29th was moved for the second time, this time to Framingham State College in Framingham, Massachusetts, headlined by Homicide versus Steve Creel in a no-rope no barbed-wired match. There is, there is someone from a local promotion who apparently called both the original venue in Wakefield and then the second venue in Woolburn complaining about the type of show. The Woolburn Middle School was well aware the calls would come from agreeing to do the date, but then the Wakefield item ran a negative story on the show which claimed Ring of Honor was late in paying its bills when they ran Wakefield before, and that the show featured lots of swearing. Local police in Woolburn told Ring of Honor after the article came out that they weren't going to allow the show in their city. Ring of Honor officials called the paper and sent in a copy of the cash check for building rent for Wakefield, cash three days before the show took place, and they asked for a retraction, but to our knowledge, that hasn't run. Ring of Honor spent days calling up any place in the Boston suburbs and getting turned down by everyone until John Walters managed to open the door to the Framingham building. So I guess we have John Walters to thank that this show even took place, apparently. Good old Framingham State, because there is not only... An ultraviolet match, but plenty of swearing too. So, like, <laughs> yeah, Framingham State, we don't give a shit. Like that's their. I think that's their motto. school motto. Yeah. <laughs> we don't well, care. Well, I will say it's more appropriate than doing it at a middle school. Definitely, it grew up. Yeah. Um, so that brings us to the show proper. Moving right along, War of the Wire took place November 29, two thousand three, at the Framingham State College in Framingham, Massachusetts, in front of a reported crowd of five hundred fifty people. The Observer talking about the attendance wrote, Ring of Honor, with all sorts of problems going in, ran its first weekend with two shows, running on the 28th in Fairfield, Connecticut, and the 29th in Framingham. After having to move the location twice, they drew about 450 and 550 respectively, the latter of which they should have been thrilled about with, should have been thrilled with, since the final change in location wasn't announced until barely a week before the show. And it's not like they have television to get that word out. But they drew a total internet crowd, many of whom travel long distances to see their show. So they are luckier than most if there were two moves on short notice. They're trying to do more storylines, and the crowd is more accepting of that. As a year ago, they crapped on a lot of attempts to do angles. I, I think that's a bit of, like, I don't remember a lot of unwarranted crapping on angles from the crowd a year ago. Matt. Yeah, no, I think the stuff they crapped on was mostly like, 
when they tried to get when they tried to just get overly gimmicky. I think he's probably thinking of the red versus uh, what Jodie Fleisch match that where Special K interrupted it after like five minutes. But I think that yeah. wasn't so much that they were trying to do an angle so much as people were excited for a match and they didn't give them the match. Yeah, I do not think of ring of the Ring of Honor crowd at this point as like a spoiled, demanding crowd. I mean, I guess the one thing that, that really had going against them at this point was how belligerent they could be if they got the wrong guest star like ICP or Conan or Jeff Hardy. But other than that, I don't see them as a crowd that was like shitting on things just to shit on things. Although I will say that the crowd on this show was eerily quiet for a lot oh, of it. This- I was going to say that for a little bit later, but I think we should get into this, I guess. Um, Matt, as someone – you want the most qualified people because you and I are probably two of the only people other than some of our listeners who have rewatched the first 31 Ring of Honor shows in the last year. Is this the quietest, worst crowd in Ring of Honor's history up to this point? I would say definitely. Um, I would agree. Like, I'm trying to think of what we came close. Like, I remember like Night of the Butcher had an unusually quiet crowd, but there really aren't a lot of events where I thought the crowd was particularly quiet so far, and this one definitely was. And it's funny because it, they clearly were capable of getting up for certain things. I thought they were pretty up for the world title match. Um, some of the aspects, like they were into John Walters, which, you know, hey, good for, good for Gabe. He really pushed John Walters, got him over in his hometown. But you know, for a lot of the other parts of the show, they were just really quiet. And, um, you know, I don't know that they were like, I didn't sense a lot of negativity coming from the crowd. I just, they were just quiet. I don't know if they had just, um, they were just too full to make any noise after Thanksgiving uh, and the day after Thanksgiving leftovers and stuff. Maybe that was it, but it was weird because I don't remember that being the case in any of the other Boston shows either. Um, Joe, did you notice that when you watched this DVD, and do you remember thinking that? And how full turkey were you? I was likely very full. (laughs) Um, I went over my original, I did a show report for the CubsFan.com for this show and, and went over it and didn't make any mention of the crowd being bad, even though Rewatching it, it's like, man, it's it's quiet here. Like, I made a note that a certain spot in the world title match really blew the roof off the uh, off the place. And while there, it you know, it was a noticeable pop. It wasn't that big, according to my notes. So I don't know if it's maybe they just didn't mic it right. Maybe they didn't have time to really have a proper setup. I don't know. But yeah, watching this on DVD, it's it's library quiet at points. See, that's yeah. the funny thing. Like, I actually. Um, Midway through the show, I actually thought maybe they mic'd it bad because I knew going in that they drew 550, which is a good crowd by uh, early Ring of Honor standards. But then in that middle of the show where uh, they do a bit where Xavier calls down the Yankees or, or whatever, uh, that that was a loud reaction. So I was like, no, this is mic'd okay because when they want to get loud, they they can get loud. But. The, uh, the other thing is like as far as miking the crowd, does ROH mic the crowd? Like I, as I was always under the impression that they just – the noise the, the, that came through the the recording on the cameras is the noise that they put on the DVDs. Like, did, did was ROH at the time separately like miking the building outside of what they were actually just getting on their cameras? Yeah, you're probably right. I just used that phrase because I'm used to using that with no, like. Yeah, I was WWE. more just. I was more just asking. Like, I'm not even sure. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That was just Me always either. my assumption. I mean, both of you have been to Ring of Honor shows from you know, the, this time period that we cover and yeah. I haven't. So you would know better than me, both of you. Yeah, I but. don't remember any sort of like noticing any sort of particular like audio setup. I, I've obviously noticed the cameras and stuff. 
And then one other little note, Mike Johnson had Mike Johnson attended both of the halves of the double shot weekend. He actually had a bit of a higher attendance figure. I always go with the observer attendance figure. He said, he writes, the promotion still drew 600 to the show, which has to be seen as an accomplishment as Framingham, Massachusetts is nowhere near the previous sites of Wakefield and Woburn. The crowd is even more of the crowd is even more of an amazement as it was near impossible to figure out where the building was and parking was non-existent. The place looked awesome live and should look tremendous on video. The Massachusetts fans jam-packed the merchandise tables during the two intermissions on the show, so it was a good night overall in terms of money for the company. Uh, Joe, I'm not going to expect you to remember the parking situation of a 15 year old show. I like the idea that I like the idea that it was non-existent. Everyone just was like, "Well, there are no parking spaces. We're just going to leave our cars on the streets, like the Everybody Hurts video. We're just going to go watch this uh, <laughs> this good, wrestling." That's a good pull. That's Ve- a good Thank you. Very quietly. Um, so yeah, it, it's it, the one thing is I wonder if uh, Mike was watching a lot of the Ring of Honor home releases because when he talks about the venue should look great. Ring of Honor blacks out all their crowds at this point and have been doing so for a long time. Like you couldn't see the venue really. So the idea that, oh, it's going to look great on, on video. Uh, you can't see it. It looks like everything else. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't the, the Hammerstein ballroom or anything noticeable. <laughs> and uh, I will say, I actually did miss the first match because I got so confused as to where to go that I ended up being a little late for the show much, even though this was by far the closest Ring of Honor show I had to drive to. It was only about a half hour away from where he was, as opposed to about an hour for the other two. Mm. And what a match you missed. <laughs> <laughs> and then the one last thing from before we get into the show proper, I just found this going to the Wayback Machine from Ring of Honor's website. I love the, to- the tough talk on the Ring of Honor website. This is what they wrote after this show. You can try to knock us down, but we'll always get back up. The lesson here is that people can try to stop us, but they can't. Ring of Honor and its fan base are too united and too strong to be stopped. We will always succeed in the end and put on the best product going today. So I love, like, they never call whatever this promotion was that was making these calls and getting them kicked from venues. But I love just, like, the strong wording of, like, you could try and stop us, but we made it here. <laughs> they, no, yeah. no parking. They were trying to do, like, the Paul Heyman defiant thing, but they're just too dorky to pull it off. <laughs> yeah, I, I can only hear that in Gabe's voice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so... The show starts uh, proper with uh, Gary Michael Capetta is in the building on a cell phone being told that Steve Carino is approaching the building. He walks about three steps outside and finds Carino, so that was a hell of a late call to Gary. Um, Carino wonders why the feud with Homicide really had to come to this tonight. Steve says that not many people have ever fought in a barbed wire rope match. Homicide hasn't, but Steve says he has. He said he wrestled Terry Funk in one and ended up in bed for two days afterwards. He then points out that Funk is 59 and Homicide is only 25, and this has him worried, so that Homicide's uh, much younger than the last time he went up against an opponent in this kind of match. Uh, Steve says this all happened because of one elbow, because Homicide didn't realize that when the Backseat Boys showed up in Ring of Honor, it was their job to push them back to CZW. So he's referencing the very start of the feud in late 2002, where the Backseat showed up and had an open challenge, and Crino came out as homicide. He would take them on with any guy from the back and Crino came out and then they had some miscommunication. And that's what started the whole feud as weird as it is as humble a beginning as that is to how crazy this feud got. That's what started it. Anyway, um, Steve says homicide almost blinded him when he stabbed him with a fork. He caused a riot in New York city and he took Crino's hearing away in one year in one ear. 
Carino says in wrestling, you, ne- you know never to slap a guy's ear. He says because of homicide, he can't pick up women in Japanese nightclubs anymore because he can't hear them. Carino says he never tapped out to homicide. Guillotine Legrand threw him the towel in their last match because he has friends that care about him and homicide doesn't. He says no one cares about homicide. He compares him to Mike Tyson, saying that people are just using him to make money. Creole says Homicide's overrated, has a big ego, and owes Creole for his trip to Japan with Zero One, and he owes his entire career to Creole. Uh, Capetta then tells Steve that because this match is so important, Ring of Honor will have camera crews following him and Homicide the whole night. Steve is fine with that. Creole gets annoyed with Capetta. He calls down the posters on the Ring of Honor message board and says journalism is dead. So Creole way ahead of his time there, talking about fake news. Uh, Steve says tonight for once more, he doesn't compare, uh, he doesn't care about the money or the glory tonight. The feud ends and you'll see the end of homicide and ring of honor. And the one thing to point out about this promo before I get your guys' opinions, this was in near total blackness. (laughs) The camera could not adjust to the lighting outside. It was not adjusted. You literally, you, you couldn't see almost anything. It was just a bunch of spooky shadows talking all spooky. Um, it was a literal uh, shadow cabal there that Steve Greeno had. Yeah, that, that's the one thing that stood out to me. The other thing that was funny is the concept that, like, uh, Homicide has hangers on, but, you know, just using him for money as if, like, Julia Smokes and Benny Blanco are just, like, making bank off of following <laughs> Homicide to these, like, independent shows that draw a few hundred people. Um, that's funny to me, but I guess you're, you're putting over the... Uh, the gravitas of what they're doing, so I guess I can't I can't knock it too much, but it's funny. Yeah, it was a good. I thought it was a good. I thought it was a good promo. It was just you know, uh, uh, com- in complete darkness, which is bad. Yeah, and I uh, I did like the idea that they're going to keep the cameras on these guys the whole night. That they're trying to do something to make the match feel special. You know, like we're going to keep cutting back to these guys. So I like that conceit and we'll see that throughout the show. Yeah. And, and Carino in particular and Legrand really do a good job with this throughout the whole show of just their, 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 you know, their, their aura is different than usual. They seem very authentic. Um, well, we'll get to some of the stuff with the sun that yeah. seemed a little bit much later, but like they 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 do a really good job. Homicide does a pretty good job. Julius Smokes is Julius Smokes. What can you say about him? <laughs> I guess we'll get to that in a second. So first, we'll have to cut to Samoa Joe elsewhere backstage in another extreme close-up Samoa Joe promo. Joe says he could hear people saying that cracks are beginning to show in him, that he's losing his touch. Joe says that talk only makes him stronger, and he says fire tempers the soul, and he's been burned to death. Joe says his level of respect for AJ Styles is phenomenal, wink. But when AJ wrestles him tonight, he's wrestling a man who has nothing left to lose. Normally, I really like these little Samoa Joe promos. I think he's really good. I thought this was overly dramatic. He says he has nothing left to lose. He's the ring of yeah. world champion. <laughs> yes, I made the same yeah, note. Like, yes, he has the one thing that you do have to lose. Like, like he's reacting this harsh, like in a way it does build up the Joe character, which I think we've already seen this year when he loses even what you would consider a minor match. He really freaks out about it, but like he lost the night before in a, in a match where he didn't lose a title. He got pinned by Mark Briscoe and he's talking about how he's been burned to death and has nothing to lose. Like, calm down, buddy. You're the the world champion. Um, you have the one thing that there is to lose. <laughs> yeah, you have the one thing everybody in the promotion wants. So don't don't get too – this is like the only time in my life I think I've seen Emo Samoa Joe. Emo Joe. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> new t-shirt. Yeah. So 
Joe Sposto, hope you're listening. (laughs) Capetta is back backstage, making his way through the crowd, trying to find Homicide. He finds Homicide and smokes outside, like around the crowd who's waiting in line. They were smart enough enough to use night vision on the camera this time. (laughs) I was just about to say, I don't know if the camera people are trying to correct for the Carino promo lighting, but all of a sudden everything turns gray like we have glaucoma. That is exact, so, that's exactly what it was. Like, oop, we fucked up on that first promo. Let's put on the night vision. And that's, that's what they did. <laughs> so it swings way back in the other direction, way too far. Anyway, Smoke says somebody's going to die tonight. Capetta tells Homicide that Crino says he's responsible for his success. Homicide doesn't seem to care about this. Uh, Homicide says he doesn't care about Ring of Honor today. Carino's a dead man. He says, I don't like him and that's a shoot, which I hate those little that's a shoot comments. You don't need those. Uh, Smoke, Julie Smoke says they've been chilling with Master P, which made me laugh for some reason. Uh, I, want, I, I imagine it's true. Like, why else would he say it? <laughs> <laughs> there are better rappers you could say you're hanging out with if yeah. you're just going to make something up. Yeah, exactly. They could talk wrestling at least. Yeah, exactly. Um, Capetta tells Homicide that the Ring of Honor cameras will be following him all night. And Homicide says multiple times that he doesn't want that. So he's different than Creo in that respect. He ends up walking away. And then this is the great part. Capetta ends the segment talking into the camera and saying, and I quote, it's interesting. Both men claim that their opponent will not leave the ring alive. Strong words. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I just like how sedately he puts it. It's interesting. Both men say they're uh, they're going to murder the other person. But also, tonight. I don't remember Carino saying that either. Um, I think at one point he might have said like homicide. Yeah, I don't know if he said it at this point. Maybe yeah. later. I'm not yeah. sure. I remember yeah, he said homicide's the- probably in a crack house or something. But probably nothing about uh <laughs> <laughs> is uh, imminent demise. Maybe Gary just read into it like he's saying that homicide's going to die of a crack addiction in a few years. How dare he? So next we go to uh, the opening match on the show. The backseat boys of Johnny Cashmere and Trent Acid defeat Fast Eddie and Hot Stuff Hernandez via pinfall in 8 minutes, 49 seconds, when both backseat boys pinned Fast Eddie after they hit the T gimmick. Matt, this continues the weekend, the little mini push of Backseat Boys. Both nights they open up the show. They beat a very low-ranking team each night. What do you think about this match? Yeah, see, um, this is one of those matches where you see, like, Hernandez, he's amazing one night. And then you see him in a different context, and you're like, oh, okay. That's what happened to Hernandez. Um, this match wasn't good. Like he does impressive stuff, uh, Hernandez. That is, and he was probably the highlight of the match. But there's a lot of sloppiness here. At one point, Hernandez is like yelling at Eddie, um, like, like what the fuck is you doing? And the Backstreet Boys <laughs> dive onto them, and it's like, is he supposed? To, is it, are they supposed to be like, like, like you know, falling apart, or is that was that just like a shoot moment? But. Um, um, the, um, Punk is, is mocking the Backseat Boys dance. He's like, that was gay. And I'm like, Punk, I didn't know you were homophobic too. Is it, is this bug hit beat everybody in this promotion? Um, the, the power moves are less impressive though when the crowd isn't reacting. I don't know if you felt the same way. Like on other shows, he does some big crazy throw and everyone jumps up and cheers. But the crowd, as we established, was dead. So he just does a move and then he looks around to dead silence and it's like, <laughs> hmm, maybe he doesn't have that much charisma. Um, at one point, he tries to like backwards choke slam Eddie over the top rope onto the backseat boys, but Eddie barely gets up and just sort of flops over the top and 
even Gabe's as it was ugly, and like that was the loudest the crowd was the whole match because they just booed that move. And they said, uh, "You fucked up." Yeah, you fucked up. Which, I mean, they did. <laughs> they did fuck up. <laughs> or uh, wrong. Yes. Um, but he does get a pop with the Tope Suicida. Um, and um, sorry, I'm, I just lost my place. Okay. Oh yeah. So they do a Doomsday Martial Arts kick. Like they did a Doomsday Enzigiri. Yeah. Know. Yeah. It's okay. like. Yeah, and so Eddie, so basically Hernandez has um has one of the backseat boys up and Eddie jumps off with a with a kick and it's like, okay, that doesn't seem necessary. Yeah, it's like an insecurity that hits the back and I like if you did you notice that punk he goes, that was interesting. Like it was like the most withering like praise of it, like eh, that was interesting. Yeah. Mercifully the T gimmick gets three. I thought it was awkward, sloppy, the crowd was dead. Mostly like bad i mean i i can't say that they were lazy but i thought it was kind of a bad match joe what did you think normally on through the years we don't get that negative but we're gonna see how negative we get on this match uh between like some of the commentary and the actual match it was a disaster that i kind of loved like i had a good time (laughs) watching this match just kind of cackling at you know the goofiness of the the (laughs) kick off the the doomsday kick the the screwed up uh but throw to the outside. Some of Punk's Punk's uh, motif of mocking Eddie's being legally blind, which uh, you know they hit the T gimmick on the back of his blind head. He said. So I mean, it was just a quick win to get the back seats over. That you know, <laughs> it didn't really work at all. But I just I chuckled repeatedly throughout the match, especially Hot Stuff's uh, potty mouth on the outside for no real reason. So yeah, not good. But I uh, enjoyed every second of it. Um. Y- yeah, I agree with you, Matt. That this match wasn't. What, who was on the low end of things we've seen in Ring of Honor? A little bit below average. Like it was, there was you know some entertainment, but it was sloppy. Uh, I think one the other spot that I noticed that was really sloppy where Hernandez de- tries to do another one of his big like super powerful impressive Hernandez spots where he goes for a double German on the back seats where he tries to German them both and Cashmere kind of slips out of it mid move and just ends up falling on top of Hernandez. Like it was just that kind of night for, for those guys. It seemed like, and one other thing I noticed was the back seats. Like I thought at this point that they were kind of face now with how they were being positioned, but there was a lot of character work in this match and it was mostly the back seats. Like, being heels, they did like eye gouges and biting, and it, it just felt like I don't know who I don't know hardly anyone in Ring of Honor at this point. I don't know what their face heel status is. Yeah, but that this this is caught this, me off guard. This is a trend uh, in ROH these days, as far as like I mean, we'll see other matches where guys who were heels the night before were faces tonight, and vice versa. But I, I thought that um, that one sequence you mentioned where um, Hernandez tries to throw. Uh, fast Eddie over the ropes, but he doesn't get up and it gets the big you fucked up chant. I thought there's a, that sequence because the move that follows is immediately after that. Uh, Hernandez does his big tope, like dive over the top rope to the floor that gets a, a good reaction. And I felt like that sequence was kind of Hernandez's career summed up in a nutshell where like <laughs> one move, you know, is not impressive and he's sloppy and the crowd's shitting on him and not into him. And then the very next thing, he does something really impressive. And the crowd pops. So it's like that. If I had to just have like a 30 second clip to sum up, like, this is Hernandez, that might be the clip. And yeah, I, the C. Oh, go on. No, so I keep thinking that Hernandez's run in ROH is like is over and then he's back at another show. So I wonder how much more we see of him for a while. 
I'm not sure. Um, I do know that uh, I uh, one thing I agree with Joe about is I thought the CM Punk commentary, apart from there's going to be another moment tonight too where this is, I, I think Punk, who's known to be one of the more progressive guy, like wrestlers on at, social media and stuff. At least back this, then. At least back then. You know, like he, some other people have probably usurped him by now, but at the time. Well, even now, he, he he's pretty open in terms of standing up for certain things, but like. Yeah. There, there's some things he probably has grown out of that he showed here that he would probably not do today. The gay comment was one, and you know, people grew out of things. I certainly have grown out of stupid things, but, yeah. um, yep. th- there was one funny punk. Well, there's a couple funny punk commentary moments. And I guess we should note if it wasn't apparent already punks doing commentary for the show, he'll drop in and out frequently. And when he drops out, Doug will sub in, but, um, at one point, Punk makes fun of Fast Eddie, saying that maybe because he's blind, he forgot to wear knee pads. And he just points out that he wears knee sleeves. He doesn't actually have knee pads. I felt like if I was a wrestler and like you pointed that out, I'd be kind of angry. Like, shut up, man. Just yeah. people won't notice if you don't point this out. Shut up. Nothing that I and, ever would have noticed in my entire yeah. life. Yeah. Exactly. And like, but then once he points out, you go, oh, yeah, he is wearing knee sleeves. He's not wearing knee pads. And then. This is, I thought this was a funny moment on commentary. At one point, uh, Trent Acid pokes Fast Eddie in the eye, and Punk says, Would that even hurt a blind guy? Like, somehow being blind makes it so having a finger <laughs> jabbed into your eye does not hurt. Like, I, don't, I don't know what Punk's thinking, but um, I thought that made me laugh. And I think I had one other thing to know. I'm just trying to look here. Oh, yeah, this is this is something I have to talk about. I know we have some people involved in the wrestling business who, who listen to the show. I don't know if we have any active wrestlers, but I have to say this. This is a nitpick I have. If you are a babyface in a wrestling match, which Hernandez and Eddie were supposed to be in this match based on the fact that they were getting eye gouged and cheated on. Uh, I hate if you're a big, strong guy and you do you ask for a test of strength against a guy who is clearly way weaker than you because that's a heel dick move. And that's Hernandez acts in this match for a test of strength with cashmere. And I just thought that would be like if me and Adele were in a talent show and Adele before the show was like, come on, pussy. I dare you to sing tonight. That's like <laughs> Adele. You're going to beat me. If we both sing, let me do my own talent. And she was like, no, you, you got to sing too. And I'll say it's like, like Hernandez asking Johnny cashmere as the face to be like, test of strength, buddy. It's like, is he fucking, like, you're either an asshole or you're really dumb, because why would you do that to this guy? Now I need to know what you would do to try to defeat Adele's singing. It would be a whole episode of this podcast. That's the only thing I have resembling talent. So you'd have to come out and be like, all right, she sings five minutes, we do a three-hour show, just ask at a table. You're also and- you're also a master juggler. You'd- <laughs> I, know, I know that. Ian Pendulet. Mm-hmm. Um... But yeah, so that was my one note. Probably spent too much time on that match, but moving on, we cut to Steve Carino and Guillotine Legrand backstage for our first check-in with them. They're sitting in a locker room with the rest of Steve's entourage, including a young Colby Carino. And by young, I mean, I think about seven, probably. I think seven years old at this point. So maybe too young to be attending this show. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely too young to be attending this show. I'm not a parent. I shouldn't judge, but come on. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so, a parent, I will judge so yeah, way too young to be attending this nonsense yeah. even the condition that his dad appears in after in front of him, definitely the kid cuts so, a whole promo <laughs> Carino admits that he's a little nervous tonight, although he says he's not worried he's just nervous, he says this isn't the same as working Terry Funk uh, Carino takes a call from someone who is worried about him, 
Krios keeps saying that they have to keep the match short. They can't let the fans get into it and cheer on Homicide. Steve asks Colby if he's ready. Colby says he's not scared. He knows his dad will win, and Homicide's career will be over, he says in his little kid voice. Steve says he feels better now. His son is seven, and even he gets it. Um, This is a segment I can't really do justice in a recap. You just have to watch the tone of it. I really like this segment. I felt like wrestling, I actually generally am not... I don't think wrestling should have too much subtlety. I think wrestling works best as a black and white thing. I thought this was subtle in a really good way that I really enjoyed where normally I feel like wrestling would go one of two ways in this segment. They would either have Creole play the chicken shit heel and just go, oh, I'm really scared of homicide and just act like he's terrified. Or they'd have him being like overly cocky. And what I liked here is it felt very realistic. It was in the middle where he's nervous, but he's not like shitting his pants about this. You know, he's going to wrestle this match. He's going to win. He's, he thinks he's going to win, but he's not, it, it felt like what you would be backstage before a real fight where there's tension, but you're not backing out of it. You're not scared. You're not crying. And I thought just really good tone to this piece. The only real heel thing that Carino did was bring a small child to this. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, uh, but I, 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 I mean, I, it's it was I liked it. I thought the kid cutting a promo was a bit much for me. But Carino and Legrand were great the whole night. But they were really great here. Yeah, everything they talk about, like their game planning, and again, there's that tension there the whole time. They just really took it seriously in the best way. I felt like. Yep. But. Uh, we move on. We briefly see a shot of Homicide backstage somewhere else. He's getting his. We see that he's putting down his uh, luggage bag, and he has his classic orange jumpsuit from his Natural Born Sinners era. So he's going to bring that out for tonight. And then we go to match two, tag team scramble match. Special K of Angel Dust, Dixie, Hijinx, Hydro, and Lit take on Slugger, the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke, and the SAT of Joel and Jose Maximo. In 11 minutes, 34 seconds, when after some chicanery, Dixie rolled up DeVito while holding his tights for the pin. Um, Joe, what'd you think about this scramble match? Uh, not a lot to it. We had hijinks and lit in there, so it's kind of the special KB team in terms of, uh, of who was there. It was a little kind of formless. Stuff just kind of happened, went back and forth. I thought they did a bit where the SATs and Carnage crew kind of filled in on each other's finishers. I thought it was kind of a neat bit. But I thought the ending was dumb because they, they argued over who should get the pin, which led to them losing. Like, I don't know if you're, I think if your team wins, I think that that's good enough. And also, like, shouldn't there, I mean, I know this is a scramble, but shouldn't there be a legal man for each side? Like, you know, they just kind of kept, you know, pulling each other off for pins. Like, shouldn't one of them officially be the legal man? I don't know. Oh. Maybe I'm, I'm probably overthinking this second yeah. uh, match on the card scramble match, but that did irk me. But I mean, there was some, you know, some decent stuff in here, but just kind of, I don't know, just kind of went for a bit and then it ended. So, um, Matt, what what did you think? Like, uh, how does this stack up in the pantheon of these scrambles, which are starting to get a little fatiguing, in my opinion? Yeah, I hope that the bookers also have noticed that, and they're not as common. So, yeah, this is on the lower tier, I think, um, of scrambles. It's not the worst by far, but it's not close to one of the best. Um, one noticeable thing, Punk's commentary early on at the beginning, he's like, um, he mentions, like, I have to call a match 
with drug addicts, some drunks, and a couple of Mexicans. And it's like, okay, so I guess Punk is trying to emulate his 1980s heel commentary heroes by being very racist. And even Gabe, I think, seems uncomfortable by this. He's like, what do you mean by Mexicans? And Punk is like, well, the SAT, they're Mexican, Spanish announced team. And it's like, first of all, that doesn't necessarily mean they're Mexican, <laughs> but... Um, but Gabe was like, what does that have to do with anything? And Punk's like, I don't know. That's my whole point. Like, even, like, Punk was, like, realized, I think, afterwards, just like, all right, I better get, try to talk my way out of this comment. But, um, yeah, um, Punk, he also points out that Hydro does not fit in with Special K because of his body. I think even at this point, people are thinking that Hydro is on to bigger and better things at some point. Um, but, um... <laughs> And I find the commentary more entertaining, honestly, than the match. Like, they have, like, some moves, like, SAT have, like, a crab-slash-chinlock combo on Hydro and Angel Dust, well, and Slugger and Lit are, like, oh, and uh, the Loken DeVito do, like, a half-crab, ba- uh, like, back-bend combo on Dixie and Hijinks. Um, one thing I didn't like was when DeVito did this, the Spanish fly with one of the SAT, because I think it takes away some of the impressiveness of the SAT. It's like, oh yeah, well, this amazing move that the SAT do, but also DeVito does it. Um, That's a good point. I never thought of that, but yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. if even this guy with a giant beard gut can do the Spanish fly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it yeah doesn't, maybe it's not as impressive. It doesn't seem as cool. I did enjoy Gabe saying that Lit had a Harvard education handed to him, but he spent all his money on drugs and now he's brain dead. Like, oh, what a what a trajectory, <laughs> Harvard. Um, I I don't know if he mentioned that because they're in uh, Massachusetts or just like that's what what came up. But I thought that was funny. But I actually I mostly agree with Joe. I thought the, that the um, the fighting over the finish was is just stupid. First of all, it's like a dumb heel move. Like the like baby faces don't usually do this, especially over like a low stakes match like this. And it doesn't really lead to anything. So why? Um, I guess just another way for Special K to win without actually winning. But I, I think that's it. It was just a way to get them a cheap win, even though it was kind of out of character and made the faces look dumb. Yeah, it, it wasn't. I mean, it's not like there was nothing cool in this match, but it wasn't cool enough to uh, to really uh, get on my radar as anything that anyone might ever want to watch. <laughs> yeah, I would say this was on uh, like you on the lower end of scrambles. It was not unbearable it was like a low average just barely squeaking into me but just just a, a, a scramble you know you definitely notice when you looked at uh i i liked when joe said that the that uh lit and hijinks were the b team because i wrote in my notes they are the d list uh, special <laughs> k members so we both yep. used letters to describe them yeah well and, uh, probably probably cloudy was going to be on the team if he wasn't knocked out the night before yeah exactly they had to go deep into the bench for, of the special k bench for this match really missing you, really missing deranged and um missing izzy a bit too Deranged, who just showed up on Twitter and found one of the uh, video clips I put of one of his spots, so between the last episode and this one. But yeah, uh, th- uh, this was just, you know, there. You definitely noticed that hijinks and lit why they aren't like getting as many matches as the rest of Special K, a little bit rougher. One thing I noticed is this is, I believe, Matt. The final match we see of Slugger in Ring of Honor. You did the, the re- you did of- you did the research. I appreciate it. Uh-uh. I didn't do it on uh, Hernandez, but I did it on Slugger. I owed him that much. <laughs> and I, I noted this match that uh, Slugger, when you take it, well, he's just in like standard wrestling gear here. And I, and I noticed like 
when you take Slugger out of the suit and the sunglasses, he looks like a hundred times less cool. Yeah. Like, a lot of the mystique for him just went away for me. He's just now a tall guy with an average body in and, wrestling gear. Like, yeah, like, yeah, and by wrestling standards, he's not even that tall at all. Yeah, and it, there was also the funny bit, too, where they did a dive train in this match, and they built up to the big, oh, is Slugger going to do a dive? And he teases it, and then he doesn't, and the crowd boos. And then instead of doing an over-the-rope dive, he walks up to the top turnbuckle, and it's the funniest thing where it is like the least dive you can do while still doing a dive. He basically just walks up to the top turnbuckle and falls off <laughs> the turnbuckle, like just drops, and they catch him. And Yeah, it was the uh, old man falling out of bed. Uh, <laughs> exactly. It was like, this is, this is probably like all I feel comfortable doing. I imagine he probably thought to himself. And it, it's the, the career trajectory of Slugger and Ring of Honor is weird, where they spent so much time building him up. So much time. It, it's crazy to think about. They went from literally like the summer of 2002, and then when does he have his first match? In like October of 2003? <laughs> like over a year before he actually like has a match? It's like they spent so much time building him up, and the second he actually started to get involved, it's like, we don't know what to do with this guy. Like, <laughs> we were building him up, and now we don't know what to do. Like, they tried, they briefly had the anti slugger feud, the, guy, the other big, tall black guy in a suit. You know, they had their confrontation that didn't go anywhere. They had him break up with Special K and then tease that he would join the Rottweilers. You know, Julius Smokes came on that one show. And then they just started shoving him into tag matches low on the card here. And. It was like the second it was like, okay, we got this guy who can look cool and stand against the wall and, you know, slam people occasionally. The second they actually had to do something with him, they were like, shit, like we're out of ideas. Well, you know, like it's like they never really made 911 a regular wrestler in ECW and they probably should have just done the same thing with Slugger. Yeah, so but he did go on to continue to wrestle, I believe, in fact, with a tag team with anti-Slugger in other promotions. So, oh, nice. <laughs> so he did, they in fact, you know. I, I think he still might. I forget which one of the two, but I think one of them is still like wrestling to this day. At least one of them. You so, man, you did you did a lot of due diligence on this slugger stuff, and I really appreciate you. But by, by, by a lot of due diligence, I went to cagematch.com and looked at the results. But yes, I spent the like three and a half minutes. And next up, third well, actually, I just want to make a quick note about on. the last one. At one point. Uh, when I think it, I think it was lit. He had like this kind of vest thing on, and Punk said, "Did he just jump ship?" As if like you'd see him a light <laughs> vest on. And I was watching this in bed, and I laughed so hard I woke my wife up. But, uh, <laughs> Punk, uh, Punk also used the R word during this, uh, the match as a slur, which is also uh, kind of surprising and uh, not cool. But um, you know, he's he was so funny without without those kind of comments that regretfully he uh, chose to make them yeah it's true and of course though sometimes you forget how young cm punk was like he wasn't a kid but he was what like 24 25 still pretty young and pretty yeah. dumb you know at least i was i don't know yeah i, I was i was going to say thinking about this because i did notice and i think we've we've called out most of his most egregious things he said tonight that like you don't want to give people free passes but at the same time I, I do relate to being young and saying dumb things and then growing up and yeah. wishing that there was things that I would never say or do today and take back and thinking things that I either didn't think would hurt people's feelings or I thought was just edgy. And then when you grow up, you realize, like, who gives a shit about being edgy? Like, that's such a, 
a dumb thing to worry about. Yeah, Trevor, when we were that age and younger, we were on chat rooms and inst- and message boards together, and I think we probably both remember some of the stuff we did and said, and it's probably not something we really would like to publicize too much. Exactly. So in a way, yeah. it's an uplifting thing, because I, I, I really do think if you had CM Punk on commentary nowadays, like... Actually, he just uh, – didn't he sign a deal he was going to do commentary with some MMA promotion? I guarantee you CM Punk is not going to be calling guys gay or saying that guy was retarded. Look how he took that kick to the head. Like you're, you're, you're not going to hear that from CM Punk at age 40. Yep. So um, our next match, third match on the show, is actually a series of matches. It is a gauntlet match. And first I'll just say this match made me realize – why I don't like gauntlet matches and going through all, we'll take these one by one, but we'll go through the whole results off the top. BJ Whitmer defeated CM Punk, Colt Cabana, Jimmy Rave and Matt Stryker in 33 minutes, 29 seconds of total match time. CM Punk pinned Jimmy Rave in 1146 after he hit the Pepsi plunge. Matt Stryker made CM Punk submit to the striker lock in 1643. Matt Stryker then pinned Colt Cabana in 2835 after he hit a Death Valley driver. And then finally, BJ Whitmer came in and he pinned Matt Stryker at 3329 after he hit the wrist clutch exploder. Before the match starts, uh, Punk got on the mic in the ring. He called the fans morons and he said he was the victor of the feud of the year last night when he beat Raven, which sounds like a scripted line from Gabe. It probably wasn't, but that that's that stiff kind of I won the feud of the year yesterday. At the beginning at the beginning of the show, Gabe, even on commentary, congratulated Punk for winning the feud, which uh, <laughs> sounded so corny, but <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Hey. Um Punk says he turned the locker room upside down last night and he still didn't find out who took out Lucy. So he's going to do the same tonight after he wins this gauntlet match. Uh, Reading this back, I just realized he doesn't win the gauntlet match. And as best I can tell, he doesn't turn the locker room. In fact, he goes back to commentary. So Punk maybe not caring that much about Lucy because he ends up like calling some more matches. And even though this is all post done post-production commentary, when they do the commentary, they act like they're watching it. They're live. So, yeah. So, we'll go to match one. Punk versus Jimmy Rave versus CM Punk. I thought this was slightly above average, but it was disappointing. And I really compare it to the recent Jimmy Rave-Christopher Daniels match we saw recently, where it's a very technically, mechanically sound match. It's, it's very solid in construction. But I still feel like Jimmy Rave, at this point in his career, had very little charisma and no character. I mean... At this point in Ring of Honor, his character is he loses a lot and gets yelled at by AJ Styles. <laughs> and um, so I, I feel like he really needed like a big show-stealing match at this point in his career. And he keeps having these matches where it never feels like they're going – him and his opponent are like going for it. They're just like these very kind of like demure, like we're not going to overshadow anything kind of basic matches. But there was nothing in this match that was bad. I mean, Rave spent – I would say like – the bulk of the match working over Punk's knee, which would play into the next match. It just, it, it just wasn't anything exciting. Um, Matt, do you agree? Disagree? Yeah, I mostly agree. I mean, like all of, for all of these matches, like with the caveat being like the crowd is crazy dead and that makes everything seem less exciting. Um, the one thing that they popped for surprisingly was a cravat suplex by Punk. Which, that is cool, though. It was cool, but it's just weird to everything else that they made no reaction to. I did like at the beginning when Punk was uh, doing his promo and the crowd was chanting, where is Lucy at him? And he's like, I know where Lucy is. I just want to find out who beat her up. Like, <laughs> I, I was like, are you undercutting this or not? I can't really tell what's going on here. Um, 
but you know, like Ray was working on Punk's knee a lot, and I thought that was that was a good story. But then Punk kept doing stuff on his knee, like he dropped Rave on his knee and then sold his knee. It's like you're dumb. Um, he does one at one point he literally does a low blow right in front of the ref. And it's like, what, yeah. what are the rules in ROH? And then he hits a Pepsi plunge, which to win, but that also is hurting his knee. So it, and, you know, the, the idea is Rave's going after Punk's knee because Punk's knee has already been injured, um, you know, over the past month. So it makes sense, but it, Punk, I, I, I thought Rave was doing a good job and Punk's selling was pretty good, but Punk's, like, his strategy didn't make any sense given that he kept doing stuff that would hurt his knee more. So, um... I thought it wasn't bad, like you said. The crowd being dead continually takes me out of a lot of these matches. Joe, what'd you think? This would have been your... Oh, I was going to say this would have been the first match you saw coming to the show because you missed the opening match, but no, you saw the second match. But still, what'd you think about the second match you would have seen on this show? <laughs> well, uh, you may have noticed there was, at some point, kind of a random holy shit chant. Where... I wanted to know about that. Do you oh, know? do you want to know the reason? Yes. Someone let out a titanic belch, and it was so loud oh I heard from across the gym. <laughs> do you, so do you, rem- do you remember this, or did you write it down? I wrote it down, but I, I do remember it, too. <laughs> for those who don't know, for those who don't know, the, during, like, as Matt said, dead crowd for mo- pretty much the whole night, This the dead crowd for this match, randomly in this match, I wrote in my notes, there's a holy shit chant for a reason I can't find. I had no idea that, one, Joe would know, and two, it would be a belch. <laughs> Someone let out the biggest burp. Like seriously, one of the biggest ones I ever heard. Like you know, <laughs> at least it wasn't a fart. I guess. <laughs> no, Matt and I would run into that in a later. <laughs> we're years away, years away from that episode. Yes, we're years away from that. Sorry for the tease, but the like, ultimate clip. Yeah. Um, no, but like like you said, uh, they told a good story. But Punk is supposedly the biggest heel in the company, so. And no one really wants to cheer for rave, so there's really no incentive to to get invested. But like you said, it was it was it was fine. It was mechanically fine, but uh, just you know, it was just interesting to me when they you know I heard they set up this gauntlet match. I'm like, oh, they could do something like Punk and Cabana, you know, and just have or or Punk and Whitmer. They were having good stuff in IWA Mid South at the time, and then they just kind of just did not those things and just kind of other less interesting matches. And. The other thing I, I guess I forgot to mention was uh, Gabe is again joined by Allison Danger on commentary like he was on the last show just for one minute, just one minute each time. And just like last time, he pervs on her. First, he um, she, she says she's there to keep an eye on CM Punk. Gabe asks Allison of the prophecies behind the Lucy attack. She gets offended and leaves. And then as she leaves, Gabe says, you smell nice. And then the funny point was then Doug comes back in and he introduces Doug as the much more unattractive Ray Morrow. And Doug takes it in stride. I thought that was a fun little jab at his friend. Um, I've never seen like a really clear picture of Doug Gentry, but I bet he was a fine looking fellow. I mean, you can see him at ringside holding the camera off. Right, right. Perfectly normal looking human being. Hmm. But uh, also there was, I did notice reading back over my notes yesterday, there was a lot of, there were a lot more botches on the show than usual. Because I would pick out like a lot of botches. Like there was one in this, or maybe not even a botch, but just bad looking spots. Rave and Punk did a spot here where, uh. Rave jumps off the apron to Hurricane Rana punk into the guardrail, but he doesn't get nearly enough momentum on the move, so it slows down in the middle, and Punk basically kind of has to really obviously throw himself into the guardrail. And it just seemed like there were a few more moments 
than usual tonight like that. Things that didn't quite work or were clearly botched. And, it, you know, again, just an off night for some people in some uh, ways. I wonder if it was because it was a double shot and they were tired from the last night. But then I'm like, yeah, but they probably work several nights in a row always. This is just this just yeah. time it happens to just be for the same promotion. You know, yeah. like they, I mean, I'm sure these guys have long drives. Like if they work a Friday shot and then maybe, you know, you got to drive five hours on Saturday. It's only about... I don't know, maybe like two hours to Framingham from uh, Fairfield, so it's not okay. it wasn't that bad. Okay, cool. Yeah, and and, and, no, and to note, like no one fell apart on the show. It's just it seemed like a lot of guys that normally would be like botch free had like one moment where you go, oh, that's pretty ugly. Yeah, and it it was just interesting to note that it was probably just a big coincidence. But uh, match two is CM Punk and Matt Striker. Very short match, basically almost all story where Striker gets in the ring. He he knows right away. Like he's pointing at Punk's knee and smiling. He like he knows Punk's knee is fucked up. He's gonna go after it. Punk tries as hard as he to fight, like very briskly, and to keep Striker away from the knee. But very within a few minutes, you know, Striker has the Striker lock on. Punk submits, and that's most of what's here in the match. Like guys, do you have any thoughts on the match? I don't. Yeah, I don't. Uh, it was a squash. So, yeah, besides Punk doing some World of Sports spots in, like, super slow motion, uh, there was nothing too memorable here. Oh, yeah, that was one thing. Actually, there is something I should note on this match where, um, yeah, th- what what Joe's talking about, Punk does this really, this section where it's, this match in some ways was kind of the worst of Punk because of a couple things. One was, they do this, like, uh, Joe says, this really involved fake World of Sport kind of, he does, like, a go-behind leapfrog through the legs thing, but it's all done slowly enough that it looks kind of dorky. Like, what makes it cool is when you do it really fast, and Punk has to do it pretty slow to get through it. It comes off like something he saw on a tape with Chris Hero, and he's like, I can do that. And it's like, you can kind of do it, Punk, <laughs> but it, not, not great. And then it ends with this really weird moment where... um. Striker goes for Punk's knee at the very end of the sequence, and he grabs it. He grabs hold of Punk's knee, and then he immediately lets go of, of, of Punk's knee. Then Striker pretends to tie his boot, and then he grabs Punk's knee again a few seconds later and takes him down. I have no idea what that was supposed to be. <laughs> it was just a really weird sequence. If you're watching this, it, it just very clumsy. And then well, the idea the idea is he was trying to sucker Punk in, but like he didn't need to because he already had him in control of him anyway, right? Like exactly. Yeah. And, and there was one other thing where um, I, I noted where uh, what was I gonna say? Shit, uh, brain fog. Um, it happened to me earlier. It's all right. It's it's entertaining for the people. <laughs> oh, yeah, this this is really entertaining. But oh yeah, the the other thing I noted was Punk is a guy who um, I hadn't noticed a lot in these early shows. But one thing flaw he really had, and I noticed it here, is he's one of the most obvious spot callers in wrestling. Like you can just see him clearly having full conversations. And there is a sequence with Matt Stryker where they're like standing facing off and like throwing strikes and stuff to each other, like face to face. And you can literally see them having a conversation. Like punk says something striker hits him in the face, you know, striker says something punk hits him in the face, like, and not in a like trash talking way. Like do this. Okay. Do this. Okay. Grab my leg. Okay. Like, (laughs) like the most obvious like conversation. It's very funny. And that's what I took away from this match. So Moving on, it's Colt Cabana versus Matt Stryker, third. Um, Matt, this was probably 
the most like full match other than Rave Punk I think we got out of this. What did you think how these two met, meshed together? Well, I always find Caban as a breath of, a breath of fresh air in some of these things because he brings some life uh, always, which is great. Um, I thought it was it wasn't bad. I, I don't know. It was um, there was I thought Cabana was good. Like uh, I thought there was still some awkwardness. The crowd was still quiet, um, but like. I liked when Cabana got Stryker in a camel clutch and was plucking at his unibrow. That was the <laughs> yeah. spot that only Colt would do, and I thought that really lightened things up. Um, I thought it was uh, it was interesting um, when uh, like because when he when when Colt came out, he did this whole thing where his music like sped up and slowed down, and he would dance to the beat. <laughs> so the crowd finally starts chanting something after a lot of quiet, and they were chanting, "We want music." And, uh, but so, so his music actually starts up, like, I guess somebody in the back was like playing along and Cabana actually teased walking out, which I enjoyed. So, so like, there's a lot of stalling here, which is not something you normally see in ROH. So I enjoy that. Um, um, Cabana hit this like awkward, like reverse springboard, like spinning press thing that doesn't connect well, but he like needs striker in the face, which didn't look very fun to deal with um but uh striker uh hit his um run up top rope suplex that always gets a pop and that led to the double knockdown um striker blocked the cold 45 cabana went for like a corner run move but striker lifted him up for a death valley driver for three i like the finish um so i would say maybe average uh on on your scale it was average which is you know, good for this undercard so far. Um, and I, I just, I always enjoy Cabana during this point. Joe, any thoughts on this match? Uh, Punk kind of ran into Cabana as Punk was leaving and Cole was coming out and kind of gave him the, you know, be serious, go win this. You didn't win the field of honor. And Cole's just like, nah, I'll just dance and, uh, <laughs> and all that fun. And um, yeah, at one point, Colt hit a, a butt butt and they said like, oh, like Iceman Parsons. And I think later there was a Thez press, and someone points it out, and someone says, ah, you beat me to that 80s reference. I was like, 80s Thez press? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, st- wasn't it like the... 80s reference. 1880s reference with Lou but, 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 but also, But also, like, it was one of the main moves of, like, the guy who was the number one star in the world, like... <laughs> for the past, for the past, for the previous like five or six years, like it was like yeah. Steve Austin did a Thez press in every match. So Steve it's either, so eighties. A, a recent reference or a very old one, not the eighties. Yeah. But all I could think, I mean, th- this was fine. But all I could think watching it is like, what's the point? Like, like what's the point of all this? Like, does anyone get anything if they win? Is it just yeah. like, uh, it's just something. It just felt like something. Oh, well, we got a bunch of guys and uh, something we want to do to build a final battle. So here you go. But it was just like, you know, why, why should I care? I, I said earlier, this was the match that I really realized I don't like gauntlet matches. Like, I realized it watching this match. And I think what I realized why I don't like it is the basic thing. It's like one of the reasons you watch wrestling other than the entertainment value. But, like, one of the reasons you watch is because once you care about the characters, it's like you want to see who's better. Who You know, this guy versus this guy in a fair fight, who's better. And a gauntlet match is inherently unfair. Whoever gets a draw at the end is a way better chance than whoever gets a draw at the start. And like like this match, BJ Whitmer comes in last and he wins after a series of matches. He only has to beat one guy, a guy who's already tired. And it's just, 
who gains from that? It, it's not satisfying. It, no one really gains steam from it. And even Stryker, you know, in this match, makes CM Punk submit cleanly to a submission. But he gains nothing from it because he didn't injure Punk. Uh, Jimmy Rave did. And Punk had a disadvantage for wrestling a whole match before a fresh Matt Stryker comes out. And it's things like that where... And then, and then it works the other way. Like in a match like this, Colt Cabana loses to Matt Stryker, who had already wrestled for five minutes, which in a way kind of hurts. I mean, it doesn't really hurt him. But in theory, it makes Colt look a little bit like an idiot because he has an advantage and he still couldn't win. And so, yeah, I just feel like gauntlet matches are not satisfying. And I realize you could apply a lot of what I'm saying to Royal Rumble matches, but Royal Rumble matches have some magic pixie dust on them that makes them great. I don't know. Gauntlet matches don't have that, whatever that's missing. But, yeah, I agree. I thought this was an average match. I thought these two actually had fairly good chemistry together. There was a spot I liked where um, Colt was holding on to Stryker's legs. Um, basically, uh, Stryker tried to do a reverse Rana. Colt blocked it and just held on to his legs. And then um, from hanging upside down, Stryker sat all the way back up and powered up and I thought that was really uh and then he turned into a forward rolling cradle and I thought that was a really cool move on uh and yeah but just average overall and then we finally end with another short match BJ Whitmer versus Matt Stryker um if the goal of this match was to whet people's appetites for the Whitmer Stryker final like field of honor final match on the next show mission not accomplished most of this match was wrestled to near silence from the crowd. It was just a few minutes of very mid-level, just standard wrestling moves, basic mid-tempo wrestling. Stryker then took a bump from the top turnbuckle where he gets shoved off. He lands on the apron, then rolls to the floor. Uh, Gabe tells us that Stryker landed head first. The camera never picked that up. Uh, Rob Feinstein and the rest come out to check on Stryker. They're saying like he's dead or, you know, he's seriously hurt. It looks like the match is about to be waved off. And then BJ Whitmer grabs Stryker, throws him back in the ring, hits the wrist class exploder and wins. I guess this is foreshadowing his heel turn. Um, yeah, th- this, this did not hype me more for the next match they'd have. I actually did kind of like the booking of the finish. Um, I thought it was kind of clever, like the idea that Whitmer was going to be ruthless with his supposed friend. Um, and obviously it's building to Whitmer's heel turn at the next show. So I honestly didn't mind it. I agree with you about everything else. Like the match was, was kind of dull, not super but exciting. I agree that the booking is, is solid. Like it, it's just that the matches these guys have aren't going to justify the booking, I guess. Yeah, I mean they did have the one good match. At the beginning of the uh, field of honor, like the, the field of honor qualifier match that ended in a draw, like I think we both agreed that was a pretty pretty good match. Um, it was, although Doug here calls it on commentary an underrated match of the year candidate. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I would, no. I would slow my roll a bit, Doug. But yeah, no, that that was a good match. Yeah, so they they I think they had it in them, but you know, like they, just like they had such negative charisma at this point. Like that's the big thing. I mean, I'm I haven't watched that Field of Honor match in many years, and I'm kind of scared to watch it ne- now for the next show. But show. yeah, but um, but yeah, I I, I did I did think of it if, for what that what we know they were going for. At the very least, the booking was good. Joe, what did you think? I mean, again, just a short match, but yeah, I mean the. Big problem was that, you know, Stryker takes this bump to the outside that 
didn't look all that bad. I mean, I'm not saying he had to take like a header off the balcony or anything like that, but he just took a fall to the outside. Not uncommon to anything you yeah. see in any other match. And they said like, oh, he hit his head, but it just, it was, you know, it, it was just hard to buy that he was like in this terrible state. And I would, I would, the finish where the ref is like checking on someone and tells the other wrestler, you got to back off. And then, you know, Whitmer grabs him and hits a wrist clutch exploder. And the ref's like, well, I guess I better count. Like, I have no recourse here. It's like, well, I don't know. That, that, finish always kind of bugs me that i think it's silly like you're like hey you can't you can't touch them and then you know well you touched them so you get to win now yeah i get that's a good point it's like if they're if they really are taking it so seriously then either they let him touch him or they don't yeah i mean that's a problem like in every wrestling federation and it's not just singling out ring of honor but that always yeah. does strike me as odd I actually felt bad for Matt Stryker a little bit on this night because I was watching watching him during this gauntlet match. He was clearly trying to emote a little bit more. I felt like his facial expressions were a little broader. He was kind of getting into it with Punk during their match. He was like looking at the crowd to try and engage them a little bit more. And he happened to be doing this on one, the deadest crowd night Ring of Honor had ever had. And two, one of his main matches was against Colt Cabana, who would like overshadow anybody in the company with his comedy. And I felt like it was the one night he, he was trying a bit more and it just completely gets wasted. And I, I felt bad for him there, but um, moving on. Yeah. So that, 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 that gauntlet match basically kind of summed up a lot of late second half ring of honor, 2003 undercards, where it's just a big pile of, yeah, that was okay. And we move on to intermission where we joined Gary Michael Capetta, I swear to God, in a men's bathroom. Like, they couldn't find room for him to stand anywhere else. He, he tells us he's going to check what's up with AJ Styles, who is, as usual, about five feet away from him. Five, it, not in the bathrooms, but in the locker room that's right next to the men's bathroom. Uh, AJ is yelling at Jimmy Rave and poking him in the chest, being a jerk. Rave has finally had enough. He says he's sick of this, and he shoves AJ into the lockers before he leaves. AJ just smiles and says, sweet. That's the fire I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't know why that was so funny to me, but it was. Yeah, so I, you know, building up the storyline that you know, we're honestly the storyline so far. AJ's come off as a real jerk, always like browbeating Rave after each match. But I guess here the point's supposed to be, well, he's a good guy because he's just trying to wake up that fire in Jimmy Rave. So um, next, we cut back to Steve Crino's locker room for another check-in. Guillotine Legrand gets a call from somebody. I couldn't make out whose name it was. Uh, Steve is doing squats. He wonders if Homicide's going to use a fork on him tonight. Crino says an ear for an ear. And then the camera cuts for one second to his son Colby fidgeting with something, possibly a toy. I did like that a couple points during the show when they cut, when they showed Colby in like the background or something. He clearly was just a standard bored kid killing time. Like, not scared shitless. Like, just like, eh. Probably wished he had, like, a Game Boy or something on him. Yeah, if it, if it was today, that kid would be face deep on, in an iPad. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, we cut to Homicide in a different locker room. He is also doing squats, but has Julius Smoke serenading him, singing to him as he does them. Homicide tells the camera that he's like Mike Tyson, and he's going to eat Crino's soul and his children. I'm pretty sure they probably didn't arrange this, but I thought it was interesting that Crino at the start of the show said, you know, Homicide's just like Mike Tyson. Everyone's using him. And then later, um, Homicide's like, I'm just like Mike Tyson. I'm going to eat your kids. <laughs> yeah, but they both made the Mike Tyson comparisons for completely different reasons. <laughs> yeah. And we come back from intermission. 
to something pretty weird. We get joined in progress, the outcast killers defeating April Hunter and slick Wagner Brown. And the weird thing is we only see, I don't know about a minute of this match probably didn't go much longer than that period. But, um, first off weird thing, slick Wagner Brown, no longer has the blonde dye job, which really threw me off. And then, the Outcast Killers win when they hit the April Hunter with a combo big boot side Russian leg sweep combo. And then Gabe is asked, even Gabe, who's calling the match, acts disgusted. Like, he goes, like, such a cheap victory. She's a legal participant in the match. Like, the only man-on-woman violence Gabe Sapolsky has ever gotten angry at is the one where it's legal and sanctioned. Like, every other co- time, he's totally into it. This match, it's cheap. Well, then don't make the match. And um, yeah, I couldn't figure out what he was saying was cheap about it. Like just the fact that she's a woman, because it's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you shouldn't have put her in the match. Then that's yeah. weird. Uh, and by the way, if you don't think this violence against women counts, just wait a little while. You, yeah, we got we we they, well, they got you. They got they got they got you all set up for later. They knew we'd be counting one day. They knew yeah. they were like, well, we're going to make no ambiguity <laughs> about this at all. We'll, we'll get to it. And. Yeah. Um, Gabe, so this match is basically an excuse for the following angle because Gabe, he puts over Slick Wagner Brown in April as hometown favorites. He says, you know, like, this has to be disappointing to the fans. And <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, this uh, to give you a hot scoop, this is supposed to be Oman versus Slick, but uh, Oman remembered how April had humiliated them last time they were in the area. So they made it a tag match. And it did not go, to my recollection, much longer than what we saw, even though it was clipped it very short and um that's I did good like punk, that, that's punk good that, to the yeah, i was gonna say that's good to the booth and said um you know he's like oh i can't believe i have to come back to this <laughs> yeah. you know just kind of buried everyone in the match but uh I, I shared his his feelings yeah i was gonna say uh that's good that oman remembered what happened at the last uh, boston show because <laughs> i did not yeah. <laughs> it's weird because gabe, gabe often does like so he would talk about years later so he would try to have like consistent booking period but also consistent booking like from city to city like if this happened on the show in this town on the last show we should acknowledge it on the next show for the live fans but it's weird it's funny to think that he was doing it on like a level as minute as an april hunter outcast killers feud but like, <laughs> that, that is an example of how deep gabe's attention to detail could be sometimes um Xavier makes his way to the ring as the outcast killers leave. Uh, Hunter and Slick Wagner are still in the ring. Uh, Xavier gets on the mic and he calls them typical losers before he says that everyone from Boston is a loser. Xavier reminds the crowd that he's from New York, which gets him a Yankee suck champ. I wrote in my notes at this point, the Yankees might be the most overheal so far on this entire show. This was, like I said earlier, probably the loudest thing on the show up to this point. And for context, 2003 had a pretty particularly intense ALCS between the Yankees and the Red Sox, including a brawl on the field um, involving um, uh, like batting coaches and pitching coaches and, and, uh, and players and um, Pedro Martinez. And it was all kinds of crazy. Um, I'm sure Joe remembers it pretty well as well. <laughs> yeah. It was the, uh, the, where there was that big brawl where uh, Pedro Martinez threw down, uh, Don Zimmer. Yeah. Coach Don oh Zimmer. yeah, I, even I remember that. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was the the Aaron Boone game where the Red Sox blew a game seven lead in uh, typical devastating fashion. So but then the so, next year they would have the very last the very last laugh and begin their yes. kind of dynasty that they have now. <laughs> yes, heels yep. ran into a lot of trouble uh, picking on Boston sports in a little bit, as we'll see in the uh, 
the next show I'm on. Yeah, so I, I was a teaser for you. I was gonna say, um, I, I, you get no no like sympathy as a Boston sports fan, considering that Boston would go on in the next decade to basically win everything in every sport ever. So yes, even the Red Sox, like they, you know. I, you know, even though when they, you know, when they were blowing it, like the Celtics were winning a billion championships in the 80s. So it's like, you know, you never had it too, too bad in Boston. No, nah, the 90s kind of sucked. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, I, my closest major city is Vancouver, which has one major sport. We lost basketball and they haven't won in their entire history. So just cram it, both of you. Just grr. And moving on, Xavier says the Boston Red Sox have choked, just like Ron, John Walters has choked. This brings out John Walters without his theme music. He just walks out. He gets a good reaction from the local crowd. Walters takes the mic and he says that this is his friggin' house. Walters wonders when this stupid New York versus Boston rivalry nonsense will end, and he calls it cheap heat. He says tonight he'll play along, though, and he'll be the Red Sox, and Xavier can be the Yankees. He then slaps Xavier, and the match is on. It gets a nice pop. John Walters, up to this point in the show, probably one of the most over parts of the show. And we get John Walters defeating Xavier via pinfall in 11 minutes, 30 seconds, when he reversed Kiss Your Ex Goodbye into a cradle. Joe, what do you think about your own hometown area guy doing you proud? Winning this uh, I, match. I guess. I did <laughs> I did like when <laughs> Xavier was taunting Slick, saying, well, he's like, people from Boston are all losers. He points to Slick, says, you're from Boston, you're a loser. So his formula did hold true <laughs> in that regard. Uh, it was like everything in this match just was like, I don't know if there was like a move that was executed perfectly, which isn't, uh, you know, I mean, this was a grudge match. I expected it shouldn't really look smooth, but everything just seemed like, they had trouble with everything. Like Walters does like a sunset flip power bomb move at some point, but he like awkwardly hits his legs on the ropes and you know, he still executed the move, right? It just looked weird. And there was just kind of a lot of, uh, yeah, it was just kind of like uh, general sloppiness in general. It, it, it wasn't bad. It was like, it was something the crowd was into, which helped. And, you know, Walters got the big win as promised. So that was nice. And, uh, but, um, yeah, just, I mean, you know, I was never the biggest, uh, Xavier fan. I thought he was, you know, okay here, but uh, yeah, I, I, probably average at best, I'd say. Matt, what'd you think? I probably liked it a little bit more than Joe. I'm into like post-return Xavier. Like, I think he's a good heel, and I think he's a billion times better than he was before he left. Um, but yeah, there was definitely a lot of sloppiness here. Um, the biggest one being when uh, Walters went for like a running like um, lung blower off the yeah. top rope on Xavier with Xavier kind of sitting facing out on the top rope. And, but like Walter's knees miss Xavier's back. And basically he just slams Xavier like head first into the mat. And it's like, damn, that sound, that seems really, really bad. But uh, I guess Xavier was okay. But yeah, I, 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 no- I also noticed that same, that like, like sunset flip power bomb off the top where like Xavier where Walters his legs like bounced off the ropes but somehow he still managed to hit it but I did like the intensity I do like Xavier's heel work um he pulled out a ladder at one point and propped it against the posts um post um and then he hit the uh, the kiss your ex goodbye for the win and then like the post match attack by Xavier with the ladder like 
I thought it was actually very anticlimactic because like he was he beat him up with a chair. Then he just threw the ladder on top of him. I thought they were going to do like a ladder spot. Um, and Walters did blade after the uh, after the chair shots, but they did not do much with the ladder. And I get that they were teasing the ladder because they use it a lot in their next match. But you'd think they would do some big thing with it, and during this match, but they didn't. But I, I thought it was I thought it was better than. Um, Better than average. Not nothing super special. I agree. There was a lot of sloppiness. It did easily have the most crowd reaction on the show, but so far, yeah. I, I so far we've been simpatico tonight, Matt. We're we're on the same page tighter than ever in 2019 because I agree. It was bone to bone. Oh, uh, <laughs> back to bone to bone. We're not boneless <laughs> in 2019. We're still team bone in. And um, I, I agree because I also wrote my notes like a little bit above average, and I, and. and um, what I what I liked is in the first few minutes they really went at it, and as the match continued, it became more of a regular match. But I still felt they were a little bit stiffer than they might be otherwise. And to me, if you're having a match that's supposed to be part of a feud, that's like one of the main things I ask for is just like treat it a di- bit different, try and be a bit more intense. And they gave you some of that, which I enjoyed. Um, Xavier, I thought is get is he's still not a fountain of charisma, but I, I felt like at this point he was growing into his heel persona a little bit more. Like he just seemed a little more comfortable in it in interacting with the crowd, possibly the purest uh, heel on the entire roster at this point. Yeah. And, um, Xavier also pulled out a couple cool, like, you know, typical Xavier where he'll just do one or two neat moves. You won't ever see him do again or not see him do again for months and months. Like he, at one point he basically did like, he sprung off the middle rope to the outside like an acai moonsault, but he like rotated into the in the air and turned it into basically a cross body where he was like spinning. Really cool move, and he he'll just pull out stuff like that, or like he does a reverse neck breaker but off the second turnbuckle. But yeah, it was also even with these nice touches, it was still a John Walters Xavier match in two thousand three, so it, it couldn't rise that far above the clouds. It was. In the clouds, but pleasantly in the clouds. I also liked Xavier did like at one point a weird, a like crazy Terry Funkish like out of on his feet wobble cell. So again, like I was like, wow, Xavier's really feeling his oats here on this one. Couple little commentary mo- notes. Well, one's not commentary. Did you guys notice early in the match? There's a Yankee suck chant from the crowd, and then another part of the crowd retaliates with a baseball sucks chant. So I appreciate like the non-sports contingent in the crowd was like, "Hey, we like our fake sport. Shut up." Yeah. And um, Punk later on commentary says, "Who cares about baseball? Baseball's fake." So there's Punk trying to be like all punky. No, so to speak. Um, what, a, what a punk that guy is. And then and then also Gabe on commentary. Gabe usually did not jab WWE. This was about as harsh as he would get on them. He says, Ring of Honor is not about run-ins. You can tune into Monday Night Raw if you want to see a great match ruined by run-ins. So Gabe usually would be not like going in on WWE. That's about as hard. I was kind of surprised. That was like as harsh as he would get on that. <laughs> it's a lot harsher than he'd go today. <laughs> <laughs> um. Mike Johnson's from his live report. This is what he wrote about the match. He said, uh, the crowd was into Walter's big time as a baby face ring of honor. Officials are really high on him and his work certainly deserves the chance for a push as it's really crisp. He's w- well liked by WWE as well as every time they run in TV in the Northeast, he's there. So it's funny to think that like Mike's putting him over as a blue chipper, knowing that 
he's not going to really turn out. And I, I also thought it was funny that he says his work is really crisp. And then Joe started this match saying, oh, I thought everything in this match looked a little off. So funny, like how differently two people can see something like I mean, I mean, listen, this was like sloppier than normal. I, yeah. I, you know, I don't think it's disputable. Exactly. And so after the match, like Matt said, Xavier has a tantrum. He jumps Walters. He hits kiss your ex goodbye on him. Hits him with a hard chair shot to the head. Walters blades. Xavier hits him with a chair more, throws a ladder on him. And I think Matt, what, what, what I, the reason I think it really came off bad was the commentators didn't talk at all during this, which really allowed you to appreciate that maybe 10% of the crowd gave a shit about this at all. And there was something about seeing like Walter's blade and get beat out of the shit beat out of him, and then have most of the crowd be completely silent where it like hurt it. I felt like. Like, he had so much goodwill built up from the before-match stuff, and then afterwards it was like, yeah, the crowd doesn't really care about him anymore. And I was like, oh, yeah, there goes that. But moving on, um, Ring of Honor tag team title match. The Briscoes, Jay and Mark, make their sex, uh, second, not, not their sexy <laughs> defense, their second defense. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, A different strokes. Different strokes for different folks. Um, the Briscoes successfully defend the titles, defeating the prophecy of Christopher Daniels and Dan Moth, scored to the ring by Allison Danger. They win in 18 minutes, 27 seconds, when Jay Briscoe pinned Daniels after hitting the Jay Jareller. Matt, before I throw this to you on your thoughts of this match, I want to lead off with this great comment from Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson, in praising this match, wrote... Danny Moth may be channeling the ghost of Don Morocco with his excellent facial expression. <laughs> Don Morocco is still alive in 2019. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> you got a malfunctioning Ouija board. The only, go- the only ghost here is Joe Gagne. There's no ghost of Don Morocco. He Wait. is alive and well. We've established that I am also a ghost. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, correct. <laughs> I'm confusing my ghost here. The only thing I'm sure of that's <laughs> not a ghost is Don Morocco. As of this recording, he is alive and well. What, the only thing I can explain is maybe Don Morocco had like a near-death experience for the 20 minutes during this match, and his ghost <laughs> possessed Dan Moff to allow him to make zany facial expressions, because <laughs> otherwise, as far as I know, I checked, Don Morocco is alive. <laughs> I am but, mad. Just think of the, the entertainment value you get out of just the fact that you randomly read this Mike Johnson report of this show. Yeah. That's why I did. You know, I, I'm panning for gold. I'm looking for these nuggets. And occasionally you get a scarred babies or a ghost of Don Morocco. So that's why we do it. And uh, Matt, what did you think about, you know, this match got quite a bit of time. How do you think it held up? Well, I, well, first of all, Talking about face heel stuff, the Briscoes were absolutely heels the night before against Samoa Joe and AJ Styles. They are absolutely baby faces here. Um, the prophecy we've talked about Daniels barely acting like a heel on some shows. He was definitely a heel here. Um, drives me nuts as we've established, but um, it is what it is. Um, this is the rare match where I enjoyed the first half and thought that it got worse as it went along. Um, I thought it was just like solid heel face work at the beginning um you know like the briscoes their offense looks good uh daniels you know did you know did some good like distracting you know shoving um shoving jay off the apron to get the heat on mark like all that stuff um then as it gets down the stretch allison danger keeps interfering um she gets she you know and gabe is like oh i can't believe allison danger is ruining this match um even the 
And then, you know, Jay is pulling her by the hair, hitting a falcon arrow on her, which uh, gives you your uh, very clear violence against women on this show. Um, 30 for 31. Yep. Even the announcers wonder why there's no DQ. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and there's just a bunch of near falls until the Jay driller for three. Um, some commentary stuff. Um, for one thing, um, when Mark shoves uh, a danger off the apron early, Gabe's like, and she deserved it. He always has to mention how she deserves violence against her. Um, at one point, Punk is talking about Daniels, and he's like calling him old. He's like, what is he, 47? And I just want to note, Daniels is 48 now. So, <laughs> And he's still wrestling. And like, yeah. like I, I wrote, not only is he still wrestling, CM Punk is retired. Yep. <laughs> like, like, he got the last... Like, it's so crazy. We saw the, I watched these shoot interviews to research and, you know, listen to commentary like this. Like, all the wrestlers, like, they loved Daniels. He was always a favorite of the wrestlers. And they always would joke back then, like, oh, we call him OMC, OMD, Old Man Daniels. He's 30. Like, he's in his early 30s at this point. Like, well, it is so weird that he was considered, like, this crotchety old man. Well, we've established, you know, like, we've established this, like, how Carino talks about all the kids, and he's, like, 30 years old. Yeah. And, and Mikey Whipwreck with his kids that he trained, and he was, like, 29 years old. And it's like, oh, my gosh. If, if you ever want to feel old, just watch these shows and talk, look at how they talk about 30-year-olds. But, um, but yeah, I also at one point on commentary, Punk says, before this night is over, I will confront Christopher Daniels. And the way that they present that on the DVD is a whole other story. Um, I'll have some answers for that later. Yes, and I'm sure Joe will as well. Oh, yes. Um, but, um, you know, I thought that the Briscoes looked really good. Um, it's another one of those deals where the crowd was so quiet, and I did not like the overbooking of the last part of it. Um, so, um, but that's generally how it would go. I would say... I don't know. It was 50-50. Like, the first half I thought was pretty good. The second half I thought was kind of not good. So I guess it evens out to average. Uh, Joe, what did you think? In my original show report, I kind of estimated the match went like a half hour. Which, you know, it, just because they packed so much into these, like, 18 minutes. Because it, it went on a couple near falls too many for me. There's just kind of too much going on at points. Some very, very good work. I did like the match, but just a bit... You know, a simpler would have been better. And we uh, have CM Punk um, mocking uh, Alice in Danger's looks, a running motif. It's always funny because Gabe slobbers all over her and Punk acts like she's the biggest hag in uh, <laughs> the universe. But yeah, just uh, a little too much going on here for my taste. And I kind of figured, um, I think I think they had announced that uh, Moff and Daniels would be facing um, Mudo and Arashi at the next show. So that kind of hinted they wouldn't put the tag titles on them. Yeah, that seemed the situation. They weren't going to win, and, and not that it hurts that match really. Obviously, because that the selling point is just that you get to see the great Muda. But it is kind of weird that like going into that show they lose a very prominent match. But yeah, it was either you know you have your tag tag champions lose, or you have one of your you know prominent teams lose like twice in a row. Yeah, and uh, I, I thought this match was good. Like on the low end of good, like if I was doing star rings, like three and a quarter maybe or something or three. um, I thought it was like, it's funny. The structure interested me in the sense of like a lot of Christopher Daniels match. It had a very clear structure, which I appreciate, but it was kind of a weird structure in the sense of the first three minutes were kind of wild where they did the dive train that you would normally see later in the match in like the first three or four minutes. And then, they do a long, long, like probably seven, eight minute um, 
beat down of Mark Briscoe where he's the face in peril. And like you said, Matt, it's really, it's another one of those matches where I think you might appreciate more if you're not watching every ring of honor show in order, because it was kind of hard for me to, to like totally get into the Briscoes as like struggling baby faces in peril when we had just seen them be heels recently. So that, that was a bit weird. And then the last half is the back and forth, everyone in the ring, you know, near falls and it, it was okay, but I feel like that's the kind of wrestling that's moved on the most that just chaotic big moves near falls. And that's the kind of part of the match that aged the worst for me. So maybe in that sense, again, we're bone on bone here. We're, we're agreeing Mm -hmm. that that maybe that, that, you know, the first half is, is more timeless than the second half where it's like, you're trying to go for the big crazy end, but I've seen so much more nowadays in wrestling from there. But it wasn't terrible. It's just, you know, these guys, you, there's a lot of talent in this match. And it was weird with all the interference from Alice in Danger, where I felt like this time, like, I think, I feel like on three separate occasions, Gabe felt the need to say every time on this show, she deserves it. Like, at one point, he even said, um, when she when they teased that she was going to get, I think, like, the cutthroat driver or something, he says, this will kill her, but she deserves it. Like, you think she deserves to die for interfering in this match. Um, that was really weird. Again, the, the punk commentary, the jokes about Daniels having arthritis and stuff, it's still so weird to me, especially considering that like Kenny Omega today is older by a few years than Daniels was at this point. <laughs> and, and they're, and they're making arthritis jokes about Christopher Daniels. Um, this is another great commentary moment. Um, Gabe, you know, Jim Cornette's the new manager of the Briscoes, but he's not here on this weekend. He didn't travel in. So Gabe says he bets Jim Cornette will be winning by the phone to hear how his team, the Briscoes, did tonight. Gabe says he doubts that Cornette will be checking the internet to find out because Cornette, quote, doesn't believe in computers, unquote. Like, not that he doesn't use them or can't get wrap his head around them. He doesn't believe in them. I love that word. Jim Cornette does not believe in computers. The ghost of Don Morocco convinced him they weren't real. <laughs> and some people might wish, you know, considering whether you like or dislike Cornette's uh, podcast, you might not like that he now apparently believes in computers. But uh, uh, I also like that the prophecy went for the rocket launcher, the old Midnight Express move to kind of rub it in uh, the Briscoes' faces, their partnership. But the Briscoes av- avoided it. I thought it was interesting Daniels took the fall here and not Moth. That, that was a little bit interesting to me. And I also liked, after the match, Mark Briscoe was still selling the neck work done on him. He was still kind of rolling his neck and grabbing it, so I appreciate that. I always thought Mark showed really good attention to detail and stuff like that, even at a young age. And I like Mark Briscoe. So, moving on, we get the Ring of Honor world title match. Samoa Joe defeats AJ Styles in 16 minutes, 45 seconds when he made him pass out in the rear naked choke after he hit him with the muscle buster, which might have been only the second time he used that move in Ring of Honor. Uh, Joe, big title match. We would never see the likes of these two wrestle each other ever (laughs) again in wrestling. What do you think about it here? I believe for the first time in wrestling here in front of your very eyes. Yes. uh, Just a weird anecdote before I forget, like in the, I guess the big gymnasium or whatever we were in, there was this big curtain that kind of separated the backstage area from the you know, where the show was taking place. And I was standing next to the curtain and I swore I could hear like two people, like it sounded like they were amateur wrestling, or at least I, I hope they were. So that I was wondering like what was going on back there with two guys just like, you know, is it like someone bragging about their amateur credentials and then 
someone took him up on it or uh, I have no idea. But uh, no, I like the, I mean, you joke. We see this. We saw this match a bunch last year and uh, you could tell right here, you know, both guys were really healthy. Everything just seemed really crispy, especially Joe didn't seem as dragged down by injuries as he is now. You know, there's just some super like kicks AJ hit that just had a lot of snap to him. Uh, when AJ pulls out the uh, the Styles Clash, that really I still remember like the crowd going crazy, thinking we were going to see a title change because Joe had had the title for eight months. That's a pretty long time for independent title reigns, especially back then. And I kind of thought people expected, yeah, oh, it's a big you know double shot weekend. We got to see a title change, but uh, we did not. I'd say this was, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, we haven't really discussed, but nothing on the show has been all that great so far. I thought this was a clear step up from uh, what we've seen thus far. Hmm. Um, I thought this match was, uh, I thought it was pre- pretty good, but I also feel like it was a little bit disappointing considering who the two guys were that were in it. I thought all their execution, like you said, was a step above everything on the show so far. Well, actually, no, because there, even with them, there were a couple botches. Like most of what they did looked really good, but there was, uh, I believe early in the match, AJ Hurricane Rana's Joe, and then Joe quickly tries to Rana AJ and he pretty badly botches it where he just basically lands flat on his back like he's taking a power bomb and it forces AJ to kind of try and throw himself forward and then later on AJ slams and suplexes Joe but he doesn't quite get him up like really easily he doesn't look great but although he does get him up for a really good looking power bomb later in the match but other than that I did thought the moves the execution was pretty good other than those couple again the night of weird like unexpected botches but I guess the one thing that made this match maybe not quite hit the heights for me was it almost felt like there were a lot of good ingredients in this match, but they didn't really come together in the sense of I enjoyed everything they were doing moment to moment, but it didn't really feel like an epic match. It didn't really have a story. It just felt like two guys who are really good at wrestling, like doing it, but it just, it didn't become more than the sum of its parts to me. Um, Matt, what, is, are the are the bone bond going to break here? Are we uh, are we going to disagree on this? What did you think? Yeah, I think we're going to disagree. Um, I was I think I'm probably actually like this match more than both of you. I thought this was borderline great. Um, I um, first of all, I think it's interesting. We take it for granted now, but it's crazy how many shows we're watching where the top matches are top matches that are currently featured in WWE. Like the like there was like WWE like main matches last year that was this match for a WWE title. And also we just watched uh, Danielson against Styles, which is also a Royal Rumble main event for the WWE title. I don't know. Can you think of another era in wrestling history where a major promotion is featuring matches that were the featured matches in another major promotion or, you know, major-ish promotion 15 years earlier? Because I feel like that might be unprecedented in wrestling history. Um, before I go on, does anyone – am I, am I crazy? It's like, is, this, is, this, is, this, is there precedent for this? I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Like maybe like – it wouldn't be a major promotion. I could see like reunion shows like, Hey, we booked the midnight express to face the rock and roll express in like 2008 or something, but not like a major company like WWE, like using it as like vital matches today you know, right. on their main roster. No. Cause, Cause even when you're talking about like, you know, like people made fun of WCW in the mid nineties and late nineties for like rehashing WWF 80 stuff, but that's only stuff from like 10, 11, nine years earlier, not 15 years earlier. It's crazy. And it's, and it's not done with any sense of nostalgia. It's just like, these are the top guys we have now. 
and it's you know it's remarkable to see the difference in their physical abilities. I just thought like the botches that you mentioned didn't really stand out to me, and I just thought the athleticism was great. Um, it definitely had by far more crowd heat than the other matches on the show. Um, you know, that the it was nonstop action. There was a couple like like deadish moments in the middle, which I thought that's what made it to me borderline great versus actual great. But like just um, just the nonstop. Um, moves and you know everything was so well executed in my opinion at least to what I noticed um, you know all the strikes I really liked AJ's you know when he jumps over the barricade after the ole ole kick and then he like and he jumps back over with a with a clothesline I really liked that I liked um, you know the discus clothesline uh, after the styles clash because um, you know when you kick out of the styles clash where do you go from there and I thought they did a pretty good job continuing to escalate the match. Um, I like that Joe, um, he debuted the standing muscle buster. Like this is the first time he ever did that yeah. in ROH and I think that's a big moment. And that's after AJ kicks out of the island driver and then Joe locked on the choke and like wrenches back to get the match to stop. I thought that was really good. Um, I thought Joe looked great here. I thought AJ looked pretty good. Um Punk's uh, line of the night that he was very, very proud of was when Gabe said, I can't see this ROH title match going much longer. And Punk goes, neither can Fast Eddie. And he's like, (laughs) come on, put that over. And I'm putting it over. 15 years later, more than 15 years later, Punk, I'm putting it over. Um, Actually, probably less than 15 years later as far as when the DVD came out, right? It probably came out after January 2004. I I believe it came out much later. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but but yeah, I... um, I guess I'm the high mark on this match. I let's say if, if we were doing star ratings, I'd probably go three and three quarters to four stars on this. I really enjoyed it. See, here's the crazy thing: like, even though our the way we talk about it is different, I would probably give it like three and a half stars. Mm-hmm. So our star rating, yeah, it's not far apart. Yeah, I'm at like four myself. So yeah, yeah. Oh, and so to answer uh, Matt's question, I guess you could maybe argue something like. Rick Flair versus Ricky Steamboat in 1977 in Mid-Atlantic, if you want to say. And 1994 yeah. in WCW. Yeah. Yeah. But but that, I mean, if you want to argue, I mean, I don't know if those are like spiritually similar companies, but that's like the only real example I can think of. Yeah, I think, it's, I think that's a fair one. But I also, I don't think anyone else had the phenomenon of WWE where they could have had these guys at any point in the previous 15 years. And then they ended up picking them when they were past... You know, maybe not their complete primes as wrestlers, but their physical primes. Yeah, I think I think I would. Yeah, I mean, definitely Joe. Um, well, way past his physical prime. Uh, AJ, you know, he might have been peaking in some ways when they got him. I think they caught him right at the tail end of his. Yeah, prime. I would agree yeah. with that. Certainly, his physical prime was at this point, and he was unbelievable physically at this point. Um, just what he could do. Um, you know, he became great in other ways later. But, man, what he could do at this point, wow. Yeah, from the rewatch, um, uh, one thing I've learned is, like, uh, 2003 was not Joe's prime as a worker, although he was already very good. But if this is definitely the year, if you want to see, like, how crazy athletic he was, this is the year to watch. Because this is yet another show where he does, like, I, I think the elbow suicida, and he overshoots again, and he, he 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 comes out of the rope so hard and so fast, he hits, like, the guardrail fairly hard. And I think that's, like, the second or third Joe dive I've seen this year where he's going so fast he actually overshoots. Like, you would look at a guy that size and go, he's not going to be able to do a good dive, and he's doing dives where, like, he's overshooting everybody because that's how athletic he was at this point. Like, just crazy athletic. 
Um, and I, I, I and the one thing I did appreciate, one thing I did appreciate, and again I liked the match was I liked that Joe made it feel a little bit more special in the sense of he caught he let AJ kick out of one of his finishers with the island driver. He he catches him out of the moonsault, turns to the island driver. He lets AJ kick out of it, and then he has to beat him with basically two other of his finishers. One that, as Matt mentioned, the first ever standing muscle buster he had previously done an off the top rope one to homicide at do or die so in in that sense i think joe did a good job of using his finishers in a way that made you real that showed like aj takes more to be beaten than other opponents so good on him there um after oh and also gabe during this match said what an atmosphere we have in boston that no, Gabe, I'm sorry. Like, no, because even this match, which did have an okay reaction, not nearly what it deserved. I mean, you should be up more. I mean, there was oxygen. We could breathe. <laughs> there was a mix of different form- arrangements <laughs> sure. of carbon atoms. Like, yeah. um, we cut to Special K backstage. Dixie brags about the Escalade his grandmother bought him. Becky still isn't there, and they laugh about what she must be doing with Raven. So, whatever. I did not understand uh, the point of this promo at all. I didn't understand anything anyone said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We get our last check-ins with Crino and Homicide. Crino backstage is right before the match. He's putting on his ring gear. He says, no turning back now. We cut to Homicide elsewhere backstage. He appears to be praying and meditating as Julius Smokes hypes him up. Smokes calls him the best Puerto Rican star since Pedro Morales and Carlos Colon. So just trying to hype up his boy. And then we cut to a series of still photos of CM Punk and Christopher Daniels fighting in and around ringside as the ring crew were setting up the barbed wire, taking down the ropes. Uh, Doug Gentry gets on voiceover. He tells us that Punk came to the ring between matches and threatened to ruin things unless he got some answers on Lucy. He pointed fingers at Christopher Daniels, and Daniels came out to fight, ending with CM Punk hitting Daniels with his own last rights on him. Doug says the Second City Saints prophecy feud is on. Now... Watching this, I was like, why are they doing the early 90s WWF move where they're showing nothing but still photos and no live footage for what sounds like a pretty major angle? And Mike Johnson's live report gives us the answer. Mike Johnson wrote, Gary Michael Capetta interviewed CM Punk, who reiterated that he believed Christopher Daniels attacked Lucy. Daniels came out and denied that he was behind the attack, and Punk couldn't handle the truth of what happened. Punk demanded to be told, but Daniels attacked him. They brawled into the ring as the Ring of Honor crew put up the barbed wire match. Punk got the better of Daniels until Dan Moth made the save. Punk's mic work was, as always, on point, and Daniels was good as well. They actually ended up ad-libbing part of the interaction back and forth to stall for time when the Ring of Honor camera at ringside that was shooting the angle needed a battery change. But everyone was so smooth, it didn't even seem the crowd noticed. Um, I guess the answer to this is the battery change didn't go off that well. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's my guess, considering that we only got still photos. Joe, what did you did you notice any of this live? Um, well, what was interesting is that uh, well, first of all, it took forever to get the the wire up. They, this this was something there were no ropes, just barbed wire. They had to take the ropes down, hang up the wire. It took forever. That's this the war, that's the like, war that's the war of the wire they were referring to. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> and Punk and uh, you know Punk and Daniels are like fist fighting outside, and the workers are still like you know putting up the barbed wire like. You know, they're madmen, like brawling, like a foot away from. Them. They're like, "Well, gotta keep going." You know, guys, show must go on. 
And, the, you know, I would have thought, I just remember the crowd being like, you thought they were dead before. They were dead silent while all this was going on. So I thought they were just like, didn't want to air it because, uh, you know, it's just, this was a big angle and no one reacted at all. So in a way, maybe this was, this was good because, yeah, I, I feel like just the same way with the Walters angle on this night, that if you do a big angle and the crowd's dead silent, that actually hurts things. I'm honest. It was so I was going to say, I'm honestly fine with them doing it this way, except the thing that I didn't like is that after this, for the main event, Punk is back on commentary, seems totally calm, doesn't acknowledge it at all, and it's like, if the, if the storyline is that you were just in a major fight with someone who's about to become your rival, you'd think that you might have a little bit of, like, leftover intensity from it. Might like It might still be on your mind at least a little bit a few minutes later, but I don't know. Like, that was one bit of continuity that they messed up with. And and again, even just the idea that, you know, Punk early in the show said, I'm going to, you know, stop at nothing. I'm going to tear up the locker room again and investigate and find Lucy. And he spends most of the night doing commentary and wrestling Jimmy Rave and Matt Stryker. Like, it's a little inconsistent, but brings us to the main event, Ring of Honor's first ever no ropes barbed wire match. Steve Carino with Guillotine Legrand defeated Homicide with Julius Smokes in 21 minutes flat when Carino put Homicide in a barbed barbed wire assisted Cobra sleeper and Julius Smokes threw on the towel. So my opinion on this match is, it, it, in a way, it's unfair, but I'm always going to compare it to the Bitter Friends Stiffer Enemies match because that was the last match they had and super duper, that was a fantastic match. I thought this was very good, but not as good. And I would say the main reason why, for me, was one of the things I loved about the Bitter Friends match was it had, like, plunder in it, but it never was the star of the show. It was all... It felt like the main point of that match was the hatred and just the attack. But, you know, the fight between these two guys who hate each other and the weapons had a guest star role. This match is much more like a lot of wrestlers treat a weapons match where the weapons are kind of the star of the show. I felt like it still did have some of that homicide Crino magic in it, but not as much. But other than the first minute or two where they're tentative, the whole, most of the body of this match is just them giving you one weapon after another. It's barbed wire rope spots, a barbed wire table, a barbed wire wrapped baseball bat, a chair, a guardrail, rubbing alcohol, like they, uh, a fork. They just, a billion weapon spots, and that was most of what they did until the final few minutes where, in a, kind of an interesting choice, in the final few minutes, they start doing wrestling moves. Like, like you would think in a match like this, you would build to the weapons at the end. And said so most of the match is the weapons, and then at the end, it's like, okay, now we're going to do the wrestling moves. And I don't know if I dislike it or like that. Like, on one hand, it, it's different than what I expect. On one hand... I don't know. I, I, I can say I thought this match was really good, and it was definitely a spectacle, lots of blood, lots of violence, but it, it, it didn't feel as unique and as special a moment in time as the Bitter Friends match was. But, you know, that might just be lightning in a bo- bottle. I don't know. Um, Joe, what was it like watching a match like this live? Had you ever seen a match quite like like a barbed wire match live before? No, nothing in terms of that. It's funny because you watch this 15 years later and you think, uh, well, no one lost, no one got grievously hurt, no one lost a finger or got barbed wire in the eyes. I would have heard about that, but watching it live, it was was pretty terrifying because you could see, like, 
Homicide going into the barbed wire, and you just see his, his outfit ripping like to shreds, and both guys just bled buckets, and there was a lot of nastiness in this. Like uh, the Bitter Friends Differenti's match is better, but it's you know in terms of kind of, kind of the gravitas, I think this match is pretty you know pretty. And just I just remember like just the scariness watching it live and just the the spectacle of it. And if you're kind of squeeze you know you prefer straight wrestling matches I, I don't recommend watching this but if you can handle it i think it's well going out of your way to watch i think one of the downsides is like you know gabe tries to add gravitas to it he's like oh i may vomit you know but it's he just doesn't he can't quite pull it off i think punk was a bit better in that but uh maybe a little maybe a little too jokey at times there too because this one point where um he's like you know homicide takes a bar bar bat and stomps it in Carino's ear and Gabe says like oh I think he's bleeding from the ear and Punk's like of course he is he just got stomped with a barbed wire bat but um you know I think this is like this really kind of makes the show in a way and you know if you can if you're okay with this kind of match you should you should check it out Matt how, how, how'd you uh, think about this match I know you also love the Bitter Friends match so what do you think going into this one now yeah I, I actually pretty much like exactly agree with Joe um, gravitas is a great word for it. It's definitely not as good as their bitter friend stiffer enemies match. I was going to say their first match, but actually, it's not their first match. Gabe made the same mistake because he was about to say, "Oh, homicide's going to go two for zero." Oh, actually, he lost that other massacre, you know, that everyone forgot about. That. <laughs> yeah, because it was barely. I mean, it was nothing. But um, it wasn't a good match. No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this was not as good as uh, the bitter friend stiffer enemies. But I thought, I mean, like you said, if you can handle watching a match like this, especially years later, knowing that people were not, you know, people came away from it in better shape than actually they came away from their first match against each other. I'm not, you know, not not the first match. Man, I'm going to keep making that mistake. Um, their bitter friend stiffer enemies match um they were you know less harmed by this match because no one lost their hearing but like the it was actually kind of a weird match in the sense of like the quiet in the crowd almost worked in its favor at certain points like that the crowd was kind of in a hushed intense silence like in awe of what they were seeing maybe made uncomfortable because it was you know obviously uncomfortable right and um, it's funny, the one thing, like, you know, uh, the guys were going into the barbed wire, didn't get a lot of, um, didn't get a pop. Um, stomping on the barbed wire bat didn't get a huge pop. One thing that did get a huge pop for some reason was Homicide getting monkey flipped into the barbed wire. That, for whatever reason, got a really big pop. Um, it was a cool, maybe because they weren't expecting it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not not saying that it didn't deserve one, but I, I, I actually, you know, this is one of the rare instances where the quiet crowd like didn't take that much away because I you could clearly tell they were like into the match. You know, at one point um Carino like was they were on the outside and Carino vertical suplexed homicide up and like into the barbed wire like in his leg almost like in a tree of woe position and the crowd actually chanted tree of woe which <laughs> might be the only tree of woe chant in history but like chants, you know, almost seems silly in this match um with the level of intensity um you know, at one point, um, Homicide did a running knee into the corner, like, uh, and, you know, obviously, like, he kept going, and his knee went into the barbed wire, and Punk just, like, very, like, coldly was just like, why would you do that to yourself? And I I really like that, um, you know, because it just, that made sense to me. Um, a couple times when they, again, when they mentioned that Carino's son was watching, I was like, uh, he shouldn't be. <laughs> like, this really was very brutal. Um but uh, the crowd. Uh, well, first of all, the the, the final spot where um, 
where Carino had Homicide in the Cobra Sleeper, he actually wrapped the barbed wire around Homicide's neck while he was doing it. And you could see like some lacerations on Homicide's neck. Like, ugh, that was so much. And I actually liked the storyline of Smoke's throwing in the towel because Carino was saying in the promo, you know, Homicide, you don't have anybody that actually cares about you who would do this for you. And then, you know, Smoke's proved that he actually does care about Homicide yeah. and threw in the towel for him. So I thought that was another layer. But I agree with Joe. This is a match, like, if you can handle it, it's worth going out of your way to see. It's brutal, but they really, like, if they're going to do this gimmick, they did it right, in my opinion. I, I thought they, um, they built it the right way. They sold the intensity the right way. Um, it really felt like something special and important and, like, scary and heavy. And that's what you want for a match like this. So I think it's, uh, it's worthy of uh, having a DVD named after it. And I feel like they, this match was full of great little callbacks to the feud. Like, um, they both went for the move that they had won their previous, because at this point they were one and one. So they both went for the previous, the move they'd won their previous match with. Like, uh, and they were both key points. Like, um, when Homicide goes for the STF, which Legrand had to throw in the towel for last time, this time Legrand gets in the th- ring and throws rubbing alcohol all over Homicide, who's bleeding bad. They both are. And what was also cool about that was Steve Carino also sells it like some of the rubbing alcohol gets on him. So he doesn't sell it like, oh, it only hurt my opponents. Like, God, shit. Like, you got rubbing alcohol on both of us. That was really cool. You know, they... um uh, Crino uh, and you know, like Homicide's going after Crino's ear. Although the one thing I thought about that was like, Homicide keeps going after Crino's ear. It's like, how much more can you hurt an ear? Like he's yeah. deaf in that ear. Yeah. Are you going to make him deafer in that ear? Like, shouldn't you go after the good ear? Like, you're not going to win the match by ear pain. You, like, you you maybe you've kind of accomplished your mission with that ear. I don't know but, when you when you got in trouble as a kid. Did your mom ever pull you into another room by the ear? Because I can tell you, you can win a match with ear pain. <laughs> I know. I, I was lucky. I didn't have that kind of mom. But uh, I will say that sometimes when I get like allergies or something, my ear gets uh, messed up. It affects my equilibrium and whatnot. So that's true. And I also, know, I don't know if uh, yeah, I think his equilibrium is probably pretty messed up as is. But who knows? Maybe it's extra sensitive. Yeah. Do you ever have one of those like? airplane flights where like your ear is like especially like affected yeah. and it's yeah, like it and it, yeah and it hurts for like like an hour after the flight too and it's like ugh. um so yeah anyway <laughs> <laughs> but uh one thing i i uh another thing i really liked about the match like matt first i agree i think you made a great point about the 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 shitty quiet crowd no offense joe but uh the shitty quiet crowd the shitty where everyone in that crowd was horrible no offense joe um, <laughs> i was especially bad they 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 did actually in a way i do agree it did kind of help the match in some respect the one exception was there was a couple i forget it, which specific spots, but there were a couple like really violent spots where you could hear like one or two people in the crowd laughing afterwards and it was like that kind of threw me off. Like, don't laugh. This is pretty. This is pretty severe. Maybe it was nervous laughter. Like, <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> I don't know. What to, what, are we just gonna stand here? <laughs> and, and there was one thing they did, which I do not like when crowds do, which is when you're seeing a really crazy, special, violent match, and you chant for a table. And now, to their, to in in, the, in their defense. The table was in the ring from the start of the match, but this is a match where you, I read off earlier the list of weapons in this match. You were seeing so many crazy violent things you don't see all the time. 
I don't get fans' preoccupation with like a table. Like you saw, you know, Prino is stabbing Homicide with a fork and pulling apart, or I guess Homicide was, but then later Crino's pulling apart the cuts on Homicide's head. They're running into barbed wire. They're doing all these crazy things. And the crowd's like, we want to see a guy go through a thin particle board. Like, <laughs> like, like, what's the preoccupation? That, that's, literally, that's literally what they chanted, too. Yeah. Like, you're seeing eight things that are way crazier and way more rare in wrestling. But you still have to have the table. It did kind of work out, though, because Carino used that as an opportunity to, like, tease. He would use the table and then to flip the fans off. And what I liked is later when Homicide put him through the table with a T-bone suplex, I don't know if they intended this, but it came off as, like, a great heel comeuppance where if Carino had actually just listened to the fans and used the table and not been a dick, there wouldn't have been a table for him to go through later in the match. So I liked that. I liked... How when later when Creel gets the Cobra Sleeper, which he won their first match in, I like that Homicide backed into the remains of the table to break it up. That, you know, he avoided losing that way. But then at the end of the match, he finally couldn't avoid it with the barbed wire. And, yeah, just a crazy, wild. And, and I love the pace these two do. Just like the last match, they don't go a mile a minute. They're not like just they take their time, but it always still feels like they hate each other. Like, it's not meandering, but they're not just, like, at each other's throats a mile a minute. And yeah. I really think that's a cool pace. They don't do they do not do the, the obnoxious Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Hell in a Cell thing where they, like, they, like, try to be overdramatic by selling every move for 15 minutes either. They, 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 they take their time, but they don't take too much time. <laughs> yeah. And just – so, yeah. yeah and it's, it's – it's, in a way, it's a shame that there's that first match in this feud because technically – the feud stops here for quite a while and technically Karina wins it with two wins to one, but it would have been so great if they actually didn't do the disappointing first match at the first year anniversary show, because then you have this really nice symmetry where both of the last two matches end the same way with a friend throwing in a towel They're, They would be tied at one and win a piece. Like in a way it would have been better if this year we just had these two matches, but this is the last, this is the last great match of their feud. I will say that. Yeah, unfortunately, but, um, Oh, one other thing that we did not mention. Early on in the match, Homicide bails to the outside. He grabs a piece of pizza from somewhere, and he, like, cuts it on the barbed wire to show us how sharp the barbed wire is. I don't know where he got the pizza from, but uh, there it was. Well, they usually do a cabbage, but uh, I don't think they were serving that at the arena. If they were, like, what a weird arena. <laughs> I would have loved if Homicide did the infomercial thing, and then after he cut the pizza on the barbed wire, he took, like, a tomato, and he's like, it's still sharp enough to cut a tomato. Like, <laughs> this thing's never going to get dull. But uh, after the match, Carino and Homicide lay motionless in the ring for quite a long time because we, I think the camera cuts at one point, and, like, the barbed wire has been taken down. They're still barely getting up. Um, the house lights are on. And uh, they slowly finally make their way to their feet. Creedle offers a handshake to Homicide. The crowd appears to really want to see it. And Homicide takes a long time to think it over. He puts out his hand like he's about to shake. And then he almost shakes, but then leaves. And it, w- it was done in such a way where it wasn't like the heel move of like, ha I fooled you. It was more like Homicide was considering it and almost did it. And then at the last second, just had like a change of heart. So yeah. that's that's. Oh, go on. No, it was a good spot. It was a good moment as the crowd was just like kind of like just watching again silently, but they were watching to see what would happen. 
And uh, I thought, yeah, I thought that was a good way to play it. Because, you know, Carino, you know, they treat him like he is, you know, like a, a huge asshole heel. But he's also, like, not pure evil, you know? Like, he's, like, there's a little bit of reasonableness to him. And Homicide is, you know, and Homicide in some ways is the babyface has been horrible to him. You know, he was the one who stabbed him in the eye over what happened. You know, he was, he's, you know, in a lot of ways the bad guy in the feud. He just has a lot more heart and integrity than Carino does. But Carino was trying to, you know, was was trying to be the bigger man and Homicide wouldn't allow it. So it, it, it added some nuance to the feud. You know, I get frustrated by the face heel stuff, but I think in this case it works. Um, yeah. Also, I can't now stop thinking about the idea of creating an infomercial for barbed wire. <laughs> it's not just for keeping cows in. It can do, it can, it can do a lot more, Matt. Keeps cheap in, keeps thieves out. Right. <laughs> Punk pretty much said that on commentary. It's that's like, the origin. Yeah. Yeah, like that's the interesting thing. Yeah, Punk actually on commentary like explains like he Punk literally basically explains what barbed wire is supposed to be for. Like you know, hey, keeps cows in and keeps people that want to steal those cows out. Like it's like thank you, CM Punk, for explaining barbed wire. Like that was interesting. But um, yeah. So anyway, I got lost in my thought. Um, we cut to Carino going back to his locker room. His son Colby is waiting for him. And this is, Matt, where I started to get kind of uncomfortable, too, with the idea that, like, Colby is seeing his dad. Even though I'm sure his son knew wrestling was fake at this point. But you're a little kid. How, how, you know, how sure can you be? And also, exactly. and also the, match wasn't that, the match wasn't that fake. <laughs> yeah, and you're seven years old. And you're, I don't care what it is. When you're seven and your dad comes back to see you and he's covered in blood, like <laughs> – that's not a good feeling. That's something you're yeah. going to tell a therapist about one day. Yeah. Um, this, Legrand, partic- this particular match was not fake. <laughs> <laughs> Legrand is uh, giving C- uh, Carino a big pep hype talk where he's like, putting him over. But I like how Carino sells it where he's just kind of exhausted and half listening and just mumbling, no more, no more, it's over. Like just like he doesn't want to ever do this again. Uh, Carino says he tried to make amends with Homicide and that if Smokes hadn't thrown the towel tonight, he would have killed Homicide. That's how much he hates him. Carino says tonight was the most brutal match he's ever been through. He uh, says that Homicide had a chance to end things tonight and didn't. And he asks asks Homicide, what's it going to take? Colby appears to say that he called his dad's victory earlier. I couldn't quite make out what Colby was saying, but it was basically like, you know, I told you my dad was going to win. Um... Creel says he can't do this anymore. No more hardcore wrestling. Uh, Legrand tells Creel he has nothing left to prove and he doesn't have to come back to Ring of Honor. Uh, Creel says Homicide should have shook his hand and if Homicide wants to... Not Homicide. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite sandwich. Um, uh, Homicide says if he wants one more or even two more, too bad. So uh, they were kind of teasing that like the the tone of all this stuff was kind of like maybe one day, but we're going to tell you it's over for now. That, that that felt like the the tone of this. Homicide. It sounds like a PETA ad campaign. <laughs> you, you, like you, there, there's a price to ham. Look at look at our videos of homicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, some somehow we're going to make it sex related as well because we're PETA. Yes. If you have barbed wire, it keeps people from committing homicide on your pigs. That's right. <laughs> Homicide would be obviously Homicide's character in uh, Into the Spider Verse sequel, next to uh, Peter Porker, the Amazing Spider Ham. <laughs> yes, it's Peter Pig. Literally, it would be Homicide. Homicide is that world's version of Venom. 
Um, we cut to Colt Cabana backstage for good times, great memories. And as guess, uh, first off, I like that he, he was interrupted on his own talk show because he looks shocked and he was about to eat some kind of, a, it appears, some kind of pasta dish. And uh, he says his guests tonight are the SAT, who come in agitated and speaking Spanish. Colt tries to talk in Spanish, but the SAT tell him, like, it's cool, we know English. Colt is relieved, and the camera pans over to someone off-camera who had Spanish cue cards for Colt. I thought this was, like, genuinely funny, that he had, like, this all prepared. Um, Colt, a- Colt asks the SAT how, how El Rojo is doing, and he makes sure to tell the people, that's red in Spanish. And, uh... SAT say he's doing all right. The SAT say they blame the Briscoes for going after Red's injury in a match. They pound the table angrily. What about the prophecy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know. The SAT freak out over cousin Red not being able to attend family meetings. They say at one point, like they're getting so overly dramatic. I would almost thought this was purposely trying to be funny, but I don't think it was. I thought it this was. was like- I actually thought it was because because they, they said because they made a point. It's like yeah, we can't. We my parents are mad that we can't even have family dinners. He can't. My cousin can't sit at the dinner table with us because his knee hurts. Like yeah, I, I thought that was that, yeah, that was supposed to be funny. I'm pretty sure. That was out of the. Um, Colt wraps up and the SAT tell him to take Spanish lessons. So, yeah, just a funny little skit there. We cut to BJ Whitmer and Matt Stryker having a backstage stare down as Capetta hypes their upcoming match. He does this off camera. Stryker wants to know what was up with Whitmer tonight. BJ says winning is the only thing that matters. Grr. There's there's (laughs) nothing great about that. was horrendous. (laughs) I I would have pulled a, a, um, (laughs) <laughs> a plan B or something. I would not have gone ahead with that match after that promo and the the outing tonight. I also have to mention after the striker uh, part of his match, they actually asked if there were any doctors in the house because you know a bunch of doctors were attending independent wrestling at that time. But I, like after the barbed wire match, they're like, ah, these guys seem okay. You know, they're they slice each other their ribbons with uh, with weapons and whatnot. But we're cool. I would have loved it if a doctor did say, like, I'm here at first. I would have wondered what they would have done if the doctor was like, yeah, I'm here. And then I would have loved that that doctor got the wrong idea. And then later in every match, he started trying to come to the ring like, I can help. I can help. Like, after every match, especially the main event, like, like I have some gauze in my car just for emergencies. Like, I can help, guys. And just having to be held back. <laughs> but I also have to say the, uh, the, you know, Colby Carino, given that he became a wrestler and also had his own problems kind of like add kind of a sobering, I guess, undertone to these promos. Yeah. It, it does give you kind of like that child star. I mean, I don't know how Colby Crino's life is now. I know he apparently went to rehab and is trying to turn his life around. But for those who don't know, not only has Colby Crino become a pro wrestler on the independent scene, but he had some drug problems. I believe he went to rehab. I believe that cost him an opportunity of going to the new Japan dojo. In fact, so and yeah, so it's kind of the same thing where you see like a screwed up child star and, and then you watch their old movies and you kind of feel guilty. Like, am I kind of watching part of the reason why they're having trouble now? It's like, again, maybe we're reading way too much into this, but it seems like the, I think it would be pretty traumatic no matter how clued in you were to watch your dad in this kind of match. Yeah. So, yeah, a little bit awkward, but. That is War of the Wire. Um, uh, this was a interesting show. It, it's hard for me. I'm going to let you guys talk about first of all. I think like 
Matt, what do you think about the show? I thought the first two hours were not particularly good. Um, I thought the last hour was very good. Like, uh, you know, heavy. You know, not for everybody. Um, but really well done. I thought the title match was very good. I thought the main event was very good. Um, very memorable. Um, very well done. So I think that hour of wrestling is worth watching if you can handle a match like that. Um, but the first two hours of this show are about as skippable as anything that we've seen so far. Joe, like, not only did what do you think about this, but I'm, I'm always interested. How did this compare to like what you thought about it at the time, if you remember? I know you wrote the report for the Cubs fan, but yeah, my idea was the first half was nothing, and the second half was uh, kind of save the show and i thought i was actually at uh i was at the show the night before as well and I, i'm wondering how many folks did that kind of did the double shot maybe that's why they weren't making a lot of noise because they had seen like eight hours of wrestling over the last two days maybe that's why they were so quiet i don't know i can only speak for myself but uh right i think i think the highs were higher than the last show but i think the last show was consistently better overall mm-hmm I mean, there's very good stuff on the show, but there's better versions of it out there. Like, Carino Homicide had a better match at Good Friends, uh, Stiffer Enemies. I'm sure AJ and Joe have had better encounters as well. So. In, T- in TNA in particular. In TNA, yes. But, uh, but I mean, you know, it's you'll want to skip. Uh, probably the last two matches are, are really what you want to seek out here. Yeah, so between the crowd and the bit more botches on this night, it, not a show... I would recommend going out to see, except for those final two matches. And especially if you're a fan of the Creno Homicide stuff, even though this is not as good as the Bitter Friends match, I feel like you kind of have to see this match. And it's more than worth seeing. It, it, it's a very good match still. Um, and and the, Joe Hom- uh, the, the Joe AJ is a good match too. It's just maybe not what you might expect. If you're expecting it to be a TNA match, like from their peak, it's not going to be that level. But it's still very... I mean, if you heard our... Our thrown-out star ratings, we went from three and a half to four. That's nothing to shake your nose at or something else. I don't know. But um, this was a solid, good last two matches, kind of off show. But next time, well, first off, we got to do some plugs. Through the years at gmail.com if you want to write to us, T-H-R-O-H. Uh, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF, Joe Gagney. We had all those podcasts we talked about on the top, uh, off the top. Joe, where can people contact you if they want to get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, uh, Twitter is just uh, at Joe Gagney, G-A-G-N-E. And I'm a uh, pretty solid follow. I won't, I won't clog your timeline. Don't worry. Yeah, not like me. Um, if all elite wrestling is looking to hire a guy to do a podcast, you know, Joe is the godfather. So, you know. First, Chris Harrington, you know, you got him to do the the numbers. Joe's, I'm just saying, Joe's sitting here. Joe's available probably for the right price. Um, next me and, time, me and Bernard the Business Bear will be hosting <laughs> our uh, the AEW cast or whatever. Next time will be maybe one of the biggest in more ways than one shows we have ever done after the years because not only will we be doing the biggest show Ring of Honor has done up to this point in time with Final Battle 2003, it will be the end of the year show for the second annual where me and Matt give out some awards. We kind of sum up 2003 Ring of Honor. So that will be a Titanic show and there's the big eight All Japan versus Ring of Honor series. There's um, Joe versus Mark Briscoe. There's Brian Danielson versus Jay Briscoe. There's the infamous Field of Honor match. There's just so much stuff. That's going to be a a mountain to climb, Matt. But we will be there for it. 
Yeah, I'm, I have like you know I haven't really thought too much about my awards this year, so it'll be fun to actually like sit down and kind of think over the 2003 and figure out how I'm gonna characterize a lot of these things. I am dreading having to go back and listen to myself on the last year end show, having to uh, read just to figure out what were our awards last year and what we what we gave the winners for. I'm going to have to listen to myself talk, which I hate. So this year, I will write down all the awards to not ever have to repeat that mistake again. <laughs> but I'm sure all of you who listen to us willingly will enjoy it. And thank you, everyone. And I hope we have a great 2019.